0: You're listening to the Fanfic Maverick Podcast, the show where I talk to fanfiction writers about their work and the marvelous world of fanfiction. This show may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. To the north, south, east, and west, four corners of the world, greetings from the wild and arid desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. All right, guys, we have a very special episode planned for you today. For the last couple of months, Sarah and I have been collaborating to bring you a two-part series on the history of fandom and fanfiction. The first part of this series is Sarah and I presenting a timeline of fandom history events leading up to the creation of A O three, and that episode is posted and available on the Talk and Fanfic podcast. Sarah is the amazing host and creator of the Talk and Fanfic podcast. Talk and Fanfic is the best fan fiction related podcast out there, and if you've never heard it, I do encourage you to check that out. You will fall in love with it just like I did. So make sure that you head over to Talk and Fanfic. And listen to part one of our fandom history series, because in that episode, we do introduce you to a lot of the events that we'll be covering in today's discussion. So this episode here on Fanfic Maverick is part two of our fandom fanfiction history series. And I have three fantastic guests with me today. Co-hosting with me, of course, is the one and only Sarah from the Talk Fan Fanfic podcast. Sarah, say hi to the people. Tell us where we can find your show. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Hello, people. Um, I will say that I'm actually a fanfic Maverick fan. Talking fanfics, it's, it's fine. No, uh, thank you, Beth. Uh, you can find Talking Fanfic on any of the wherever you get podcasts, but I'm very excited to be here today.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for being here to co-host with me today. Also with us today are two very special guests. We have Franzi and Alronix, two amazing members of the fandom fanfiction community they have graciously agreed to come on and share their unique experiences and perspectives. Franzi, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about you.
2: Uh, hey, guys. My name is Franzi. That's what I go by in person, or Francesca on most media. But on Tumblr, I'm older than Netflix. You've probably seen, if you're on Tumblr, a few of my posts like that history or new history of fandom purges post that, like, is going around yet again. I talk a lot about You know, fandom history, meta, that kind of thing. I tend to be in smaller fandoms and my history is sort of kind of got started in X-Files fandom and then kind of anime. But like more recently, I then got back into very old fandoms. So that's kind of my my expertise in fandom history.
0: (laughs) Ah, perfect. Thank you so much. And yeah, I've really enjoyed the posts that you have going on. They're insightful, very informative, really awesome if, if you're interested in fandom history. Alronix, go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you.
3: Hey, greetings. I've gone by Elronix since about 1995. I started out, I actually was a small kid writing stuff about the cartoons that I was watching. And being a kid of the 80s was all of those toy ad cartoons. And then around the early 90s, I discovered that, hey, people did this stuff for Star Trek fandom. And, oh boy, Star Trek Next Gen, Star Trek DS9, that's where I got into it. My handle actually comes from a DS9 fanfic I wrote in about ninety three, ninety four. So yeah, I have probably about 100, 100 stories. Yeah, 100 stories between AO3, fanfiction.net. And I've been doing this probably about a dozen fandoms overall. Everything from X-Files to Star Trek to Star Wars. Just a very wide variety.
0: Awesome. That's amazing. You're a fan after my own heart because I am all about the Trek stuff. That's super awesome. I love that your handle comes from a DS9 fanfiction. That's amazing. Thank you both so much for being here. We're going to have a great show today. Welcome to Fanfic Maverick. Let's just dive right in, if you guys don't mind. We have a series of fandom history-related questions that we're going to be asking the two of you. So this first question is, what year did you first enter fandom? And what was that first fandom experience like for you? And Franzi, we'll have you go first and answer this one first.
2: Okay. I got in around, well, I would say around 1994 for really my entry into kind of what I think of as fandom today. Because when I say fandom, I mean like, you know, kind of fan fiction y type fandom, fan works. I was obviously a nerd before that. I was a big fan of Star Trek Next Generation. And I'd already been online as an even younger child and I'd seen Usenet. But when I was 13, I got my own email address. I still have it. It's a netcom address. And so I had my stepdad was in the tech industry. And I think a lot of people don't know, but, you know, back in around 1994, of course, the internet existed. There was a lot of fandom online. But if you were like 13, like I was, it was quite unusual, not only to be online at all, but to have like unsupervised social time with random strangers (laughs) online. That just was not something that was happening much. So I got very into the X-Files. My best friend, in my opinion at the time, who was a like, middle-aged art teacher who worked for my mom, got me into the X-Files, and so we would call each other after the X-Files every Friday and have like a fangirl conversation about it, which is a like, very typical like fandom thing. I'm like 13, she's like, what, like 40? I don't know. And because I was already on Usenet, I was like, oh, I wonder if people are talking about the X-Files. And Usenet, uh, I'm sure a lot of modern fans are not very familiar with it, but it was sort of a message board slash mailing list-ish type of technology. It still exists, but people don't, you know, it's not that well known now. But the way that it worked, news groups were divided into these kind of little hierarchies. And so a lot of the kind of random later added ones were in the alt hierarchy. And so I went to alt.tv. You know, whatever the show is, in this case, The X-Files, and it had a very active community. So in the first season of The X-Files, I was like on there reading all the messages and having flame wars about whether or not 13-year-olds should watch such a mature show. Of course, using lots of big words, because when you were 13 on the internet back then, you tried to sound as like intellectual and adult as possible. We had many scintillating and deeply intellectual conversations like, is Scully a lesbian or just too good for Mulder? (laughs) I remember this was a big flame war. (laughs) For me, because I was 13, and I was doing all the stuff on Usenet, I was sort of just on Usenet. And I I learned a lot about fandom history, but I also missed a lot of things because I didn't have context. So, like, there were things that if I can find – like, when I find um, archived posts of old Usenet, which is hard, but you can find them. When I I find them, I see things where, like, oh, like, the term media fandom, like, as a term. I did not know that term until OTW wank much more recently. But – I know people used it around me when I was 13. I just didn't pick it up because it didn't make sense to me. So I don't remember that. But on the other hand, they said, oh, slash history, something, something, Starsky and Hutch. And I did remember that. So I picked up this very piecemeal fandom history at the time. Um, Let me see. Conventions existed, but I did not go to them because I was 13 and I was not interested. And mailing lists already existed, but I was not familiar with them because, again, we're talking like 1994. And as I think a lot of people maybe don't remember now, a lot of the free email services even started a year or two after that, and things like eGroups and One List that then like got bought out by Yahoo Groups. These free mailing lists where anybody can make a mailing list, those also started a year or two after that. And so in that era, there was like the original slash mailing list of your deal, but I had no idea because like that was all shut down. You had to know somebody, and they didn't let thirteen year olds into like an adult list like that. So for me, my first experiences were very much like just on Usenet just talking to people there and not no sense that I was going to meet up with them or
0: anything. Did people know your age when you were posting things onto the Usenet group?
2: Oh, yes. I was very open about it. There were like many things where I'm like, well, I think that blah, blah, blah. And like, you know, like, yes, it's a mature show, but like I'm mature and my parents said that. uh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. So at that time on the internet, People did have handles and they didn't necessarily share all the personal details. However, the internet was this sort of weird thing where only like certain tech industry people and like college students really had much access. So some people were more open. But in my case, I would have used a handle. However, my stepdad was like, I'm tired of getting weird emails from your friends because you're using my email and like Usenet. So I'm going to get your own email and you can use Usenet under your name. He, He worked for the university. And so he was like, how does an email work? It's F. Dixon. So for my whole life, I've had this fucking email that has my last name in it. P.S. It's not a secret. Like, I was on the OTW board. Everybody knows my legal name. But here's the thing. My first name, which was my handle, Francesca, I'm named after a random German girl that my mom taught in Nepal in the 70s, but my mom couldn't spell for shit, despite what she thought. And so she spelled it wrong. That's why it's Francesca, not Francisca. And... In the 90s, there were two total humans on the internet with that name, period. Forget my last name. My first name was Identifying because there were only two total humans on the internet with that name. So I never made up a handle. I never tried to be like, I never really tried to hide because you can't hide with that name. You just can't.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say with that name, you probably get mistaken a lot for Dr. Coppola. And then there's another quite famous slave writer who goes by Fran. So you probably get mistaken for that writer as well, I
2: think. You know the person that my parents found? So my stepdad was like, I want to read your stories. And I was like, I'm not going to let you read my stories. Like, they're like gay porn. You can't read them. Uh, he went looking after I told him no. And he goes, looking. he's like, oh, my God, I found this person named like Francie, 1981. And I'm like, yeah, because Francie is like, I go by Franzi. But like, the nickname is a normal German nickname. I'm like, yeah, yeah there are other people on the internet who are German. And, and of course, this person was writing Sentinel thick. And my mom's last name was Blair. And he's like, and she's writing about somebody named Blair. Isn't that wacky? Because you know, your mom's last name is Blair. And I'm like, it's like 1999. No, it's not weird that a slash writer likes someone named Blair. That's not strange. <laughs> not
0: in 1999. And shout out to the Sentinel community, because I was all up in that community 1999 to about 2004. So <laughs> we've probably read a lot of the same fic. So that's, that's awesome. Alronix, same question. What year did you first enter fandom? And what did that fandom experience look like for you?
3: It was about ninety, ninety-two, ninety-three, 92, 93, somewhere in there. Starlock Magazine and fantastic. a lot of these genre mags, would have a question and answer section where people could write in and comment on articles. And on occasion, they would put their mailing address. And also, they had classified ads in the back of these for people looking for pen pals. Well, I decided to write somebody. And they were like, Oh, do you know about conventions? Do you know about... Fan fiction, do you know about this and that? Because they were somebody that had been a Star Trek fan since the 60s. And I'm like, I was this 13-year-old kid. I had no like, clue about this big, you know, you've taken a first step into a much larger world. And uh, so, you know, she's like, well, if you like writing me about this stuff, let me let me send you the address to my friend here. And then let me send you the address there. Long story short, it wound up being about 50 pen pals, about five letter zines including most of the ds9 cast members official fan club mailing list so i was doing a lot of just pen pals and i took a part-time job writing for the local paper to pay for my stamps damn quickly uh define letter zine for everybody letter zines are okay it's kind of like figure a like a live journal or a tumblr blog People would write these letters to the the person who was editing the zine, and then they'd compile these, they'd, you know, type them up or scan them in or whatever, and they'd compile them into a, like, a a book, almost, and then send it out every month among their members.
1: Oh, I just want to ask real quick, are, are these other fans doing all this on their sort of own time and dime?
3: Yeah. Oh, awesome. Own time, own dime. People had their mimeographs in the basement. And we're transcribing, I was transcribing stuff and writing articles for these uh, zines on a Commodore 64 and a Apple IIe.
2: Wow, so cool.
3: I'd be bringing my floppy disks to school and doing it that way. And yeah, it was kind of interesting because I was a 13-year-old fangirl when there wasn't 13-year-old fangirls. Most of the people in that room were old enough to be my mom or even my grandmother.
1: That's so cool. That's kind of in common with both of you then.
3: Yeah, they wouldn't. They had no idea, and a lot of the times I wasn't open about my age because I didn't, it was a matter of a trust thing. I didn't know whether I could trust these people with personal data or not. But they, you know, eventually they'd probably figure it out because I'd make a reference to something like, oh, you know, cartoons or something. And they'd like, oh, you're uh, not in your 20s. You're 14 years old and you're writing this stuff? You're writing professionally? Well, yeah, it's for the youth section of the local paper. Dude, that's
2: cool. Now, obviously that those letter zines and so on, that's like a a zine of people talking to each other. It's not fanfic or whatever it is. It's a zine. It's physical. But when we're talking online or a lot of the ways people are finding each other, you know, in that era, the way you got Internet access typically was you went to college and your college happened to have Internet access, which is only certain colleges or certain certain countries. And otherwise, maybe you're a tech professional or maybe you work at a university. So just by definition, if you're online, you're almost certainly not 13, though I was. And when you're doing this, you know, pen pal sending things away for things or going to physical conventions, you know, that takes money, it takes the ability to travel, it takes being not scared to go somewhere, which you might be when you're 13. You know, it, it was not an environment where 13 year olds were very common, even though both of us got in when we were 13.
0: <laughs> now, Alvionics, I'm curious about this whole letter zine concept. Was there a lot of back and forth between the letter writers? Like, Were people responding to each other in these letters as the zine progressed? Is that kind of how it worked?
3: Yeah, they'd they'd respond to each other. They'd keep it brief because a lot of it was they were commenting on episodes or articles. Because one of the things that they would do in letter zines is that they would also, in addition to everybody writing in these letters and having them compiled in a a once-a-month briefing, they'd also have articles written about them. You know, they usually start out with a, a front page article, and I was writing a lot of those for uh, particularly Alex Siddig's fan club. I was doing a lot of stuff for his. Writing a lot of character meta, writing a lot of episode analysis and criticism, that sort of thing.
0: That's awesome. So that almost sounds like a, like a message board in print form.
3: Yeah, it was a message board in print form. It, that's exactly what it was. And you would get it once a month in plain brown wrapping or through the post. You're describing the very tasteful
2: end, and I believe you that many of them were like this. But uh, some fandom historians have, you know, for fan lore have uh, gone through some of these. And while many of them were, you know, brief responses to other people, I just want the future listeners to know that, yes, people did have long, simmering fandom wanks and flame wars slowly played out in these
1: things, <laughs> also. I feel like the word wank, too, is used by people that have been in fandom a while. For our younger listeners, can uh, maybe Alronix, and if, friends, if you want to also comment, like, what is that exactly?
3: Fandom wank is where you kind of go off on, you know, you, you have a particular issue where you think somebody who is like on Fox News or MSNBC who's trotted out on this single issue... They could just rant all day about a single issue. That's wank.
1: Yeah, I feel like it is a rant, but it's a specific I don't know. I know exactly what you mean when you say wank.
2: I think it's a, a measured and totally reasonable level of fanish investment in something on which I am correct and you are not. Obviously, wank means masturbation, right? Like it's a word for yeah. masturbation. And yeah. so the idea of the community fandom wank on Journal Fen, which is like where this kind of got spread. I don't know if they started it, but this is kind of where where the term got spread from. The idea of that community was that they were sort of boggling at and mocking, you know, fandom slap fights, fandom drama, a lot of stuff we would call discourse today, but sort of the stupider end of discourse. The idea was it's mental masturbation. Like you're having a fight or a sort of meta argument about some some fandom thing, but why we call it wank? Because ultimately you're just kind of, you know, chafing yourself raw over the same subject forever. <laughs> I mean, that's not original to me. That is how people used to kind of explain it back in the day. <laughs> With such colorful masturbation references.
0: Well, and I think it's so important to just point out to people, because, you know, I see a lot of people on Tumblr especially say, oh, my God, the fandom has gotten so toxic and blah, 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 blah. But because they weren't there, they don't realize that uh, we've been arguing about all this stuff since fandom started. You know, like it's not a new phenomenon. Kind of related. I just wanted to ask,
1: obviously, now when fans want to really geek out on something, they can go and stream a show and watch an episode over and over and over on demand. Now, you couldn't do that then. Were you guys, obviously, you know, the show would come on, say that you're into same time every week, so you're ready for that. Would you guys take notes on the show as you're watching? Do you have to take careful notes? Because I feel like the meta back then was so good, and it just blows me away that people were paying attention to these details and getting that deeply when it was more difficult to access. Franzi, maybe if you want to answer first and then we'll go to our ironics.
2: So, it's an interesting question. So, for me, The X Files, I just sort of watched and then I would chew it over for like an hour or two with my friend afterwards. I wasn't in fandom in the 70s. I wasn't alive in the 70s, but you know, I do see people from like back in the early Star Trek days who clearly were taking good notes. But for me, since I started kind of really paying attention to stuff around like, you know, the late 80s maybe, when we had VCRs, we had VHS tapes and they could be expensive, but if you really wanted to record your show, you could buy technology to do that by that point. And more obsessive fans did absolutely have little hand-labeled VHSs of like the shows they particularly cared about. So some people could rewatch, but if you didn't plan ahead, you couldn't rewatch. And so I do find a lot of meta or like fanfic kind of common fanon where like I'll read old, we were talking about Man from Uncle before we started recording, I'll read Old Man from Uncle fic and be very annoyed because I'm like, this fanon makes no sense. But then I realize, oh. If you don't primarily rewatch, you know, these particular episodes I love that aren't the popular ones, like they are where I'm getting this very different view of the character. Same for Miami Vice, one of my great loves. People are like, this character does blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, how do you not remember all the better things? But of course, it's the episode that focuses on my favorite character, not the episode everyone bothered to record and rewatch.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Alronix, what do you remember about? Were you paying close attention when you watched these episodes? Were you taking notes? Oh, dude, yes, yes,
3: yes. I, would, I, I actually had when Emissary started airing the pilot episode of DS9. It was like a couple days before my birthday, and I just said, okay, everybody out of the room, grabbed a notepad, grabbed a pen, and just, I think I must have taken 10 pages worth of shorthand notes. While watching that two part what is now the two parter pilot for DS9, because I was at the creation cons, I had heard all about it, I knew I was gonna be writing fanfic for it, and I wanted to make sure I got these characters right. It also came from the fact that I mentioned Galaxy Rangers, which is an obscure eighties animated series. Biggest claim to fame nowadays is that it was a voice acting debut of Jerry Orbick. But That thing did not come out on DVD until, like, 2008. So if I could find an episode of Galaxy Rangers, oh, I was there with, with a pen and paper trying to jot down dialogue snippets and everything because I knew I may not be able to see that episode ever again. The weird part is that it came out in Germany. The DVDs came out in Germany in, like, 1999. So I could watch it. I could... Watch snippets of it on YouTube or torrented and but it was all in German. I remembered enough of the episodes and knew enough German to follow the episode, but it was still a very surreal experience because that also brings up the tape exchange, which was a big thing before DVDs came out yeah, especially for stuff like Dr Old school Doctor Who or Blake Seven. Blake Seven's hell obscured these days, but it it was like you you if you were an American fan and you were big on Doctor Who, you'd have to wait until PBS broke out the begathon. And then they would only like show the Tom Baker episodes. They wouldn't show squat of Colin Baker or Sylvester McCoy. So there was this whole elaborate exchange because the UK didn't show Star Trek the Next Generation. I mean they showed it like two seasons behind. So there's this elaborate system. And oh, on top of it, the United States and the UK didn't use the same format for VHS tapes. So you would wind up with somebody in the UK that would have to have a PAL VCR and a NTSC VCR. And then they would record Doctor Who on the PAL VCR, copy it to the NTSC VCR tape, and then mail it to their friend over in the United States who had a PAL VCR and an NTSC VCR. They would record star trek next gen on the ntsc vcr copy it to the pal vcr send it over to the uk and so you'd wind up sometimes you would wind up with second third fourth hand tapes and that was the best you got and third hand vhs tapes believe me the quality sucks but it was the best you can get that's incredible i remember
2: being not not so much when i was in fanfic fandom but just being like a young nerd who liked sci-fi and yeah, like everybody talked about Doctor Who, but I couldn't really get Doctor Who. And, and you're totally right. There's all these things, like by like the late 90s or early 2000s, many of those shows came out on DVD on kind of like what we would now think of as like a normal but kind of delayed schedule. But the older shows, some came out early in the DVD era and some came out like last year. And it's like there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's totally crazy.
0: That's so incredible. I love the idea of a tape exchange. When you were doing tape exchanges with other fans, how were people finding each other to do this tape exchange?
3: Um, Most of it was pen pal networks. You know, you'd ask somebody who'd ask somebody and you'd be able to to swap, okay, this and that. By that, the time I was getting into the tape exchange thing, I was in college. So at one point I had some of the best copies of Galaxy Rangers on VHS tape because I had been trading with people for a while. And so what I would do is I'd go down to the broadcast lab At like two o'clock in the morning and copy these tapes, there were 65 episodes, so in in about, oh, seven episodes of tape. So I'd have like this stack of VHS tape that I would have to take down to the post office and mail using like third class bulk rate because that was what I was a broke college student. Oh, yeah, it was it was real interesting trying to get everything, you know, now I just grab a DVD or I go to YouTube and you can pop it in and see that. But that was also something that made the studios pissed. They were already kind of iffy on the issue of home recording at the time. You know, they would tolerate it if you were recording it for your own home use. But if you were distributing it, they'd get a little annoyed with you. I didn't get any trouble for it because I was recording stuff that was far too obscure for anyone to care. But you'd hear stories of somebody who was in the UK recording Doctor Who, who couldn't send out tapes anymore because the beep caught wind of it.
0: So there was the crackdown, huh?
3: The the
2: whole movie industry tried to, and the TV industry tried to destroy the VCR as a technology. Like, later on, they tolerated it because they got their asses kicked in court or something. But like things like time-shifted technology, things that make it more convenient for you, the viewer, like, the industry has always tried to destroy those if it can.
0: Yes, that's a very good point, because they were extremely worried about the redistribution of their copyrighted material. So, no, absolutely.
3: Well, you'd also get stuff like Muppet Babies, which uses so many TV and film clips and had to get so many permissions from so many sources that it's never gonna come out on DVD. So your best bet is to try and circulate the tapes if you want to find that stuff.
2: But but I mean honestly, like, like I think it's interesting because like actually it wasn't just that they thought there would be piracy. Like, of course they don't like piracy, but they also hated the VCR early on, like early in the history of the VCR. The actual issue was that TV was trying to make it like destination TV, so everyone goes home at a certain time and watches TV as it airs live. They didn't want you to time shift originally. Eventually, they had to admit that's a normal cultural thing everybody does. But like, there's sort of no depth to which they won't sink to mess up your schedule and make it convenient for them and not you.
3: Oh, yeah, the Who Shot JR. It was like the Super Bowl, man. I I was young at the time, but I remember that one. So for all the youth
2: listening, go look up Who Shot JR because uh, we're old, but it was a thing.
1: Yeah, the show Dallas, I guess, is, I, I remember my mom talking about that. I've never seen an episode of Dallas, but I remember, like, I don't even know how that came up, but the, I remember her saying what a phenomenon that was.
2: Yeah, I mean, things can be a phenomenon now, but not in the same way. Like, the closest is probably when, I don't know, like, Stranger Things or something, like, drops on Netflix all at once, and so, like, you could watch it that first day unspoiled, but, like, other than that, there's nothing where it's, like, you have to watch it that exact night. Like some people treat it that way, but other people are like, oh, binge it when the series is over. Like it's very different now than it was back in the day. I want to say one quick thing. Uh, I was into anime also, and man, the tape trading was, at least if you spoke English in North America, the tape trading was like even more elaborate because of course, in that era, there wasn't much translated professionally. Uh, I'm talking like the nineties and into the two thousands here. And so like, it was like the doctor who problem on steroids, because you also had to have like fan translators And it was also it was still hard to get, you know, technology compatible and all that kind of stuff was also an issue there uh, for any of those fandoms that weren't in English.
0: I just think that's so incredible, like the dedication required to make all of these tapes and mail them out and all that stuff is just amazing to me. So we've talked a little bit about the dissemination of some of the original media content, but I was also curious to know about the dissemination of fan fiction back when you guys first entered fandom. Alronix, I'll let you go first here. In your early years in fandom, how was fanfiction disseminated? And were you writing fanfiction during that time?
3: Oh, heck, yeah, I was writing fanfiction. I had uh, an Apple IIe computer at home and I had a like a WordPerfect software. And I was writing up my own DS9 fan novel, the one that came up where my handle comes from. So I was writing that up It actually it started as a spec script for DS9 because they actually were taking spec scripts at the time. So I would written that up. It got rejected at Paramount, but I decided I was going to disseminate it anyway. And so I started sending it out to some of my pen pals. And they're like, yeah, let's uh, let's see if we can compile this. And so they'd hold have these, you know, fixed shares where you'd print it up and send it to somebody. They'd write you and they'd send you enough to cover postage and printing costs and send it out. You would take that money and you'd print it up and send it out to them. Or they, it would get compiled into zines, which were kind of like the letter zines. People would have their mimeograph or their desktop publishing software. You know, people would send them stories and fan art, and it'd be compiled into one compendium that they'd send out to everybody who contributed or who paid the the price tag to get a copy. And yeah, it would just be, you'd get 10 stories a year and you'd consider that the shiznit. Stuff like Spockanelia or uh, Grupp, Yeah, Star Trek was the the big one in those days. Uh, Occasionally, you'd see them pop up at the comic shops or bookstores that were a little on the shady side. They'd usually put them behind the counter and you'd have to ask them. Oh, that's so cool.
0: Now, when you say behind the counter, are we talking about the fanzines or are we talking about like illicit copies of fan fiction stories?
3: It would be the fanzines, the actual compendium fanzines It was explicit content, so they'd want to make sure you were 18 first. The other reason is that studios sometimes didn't like you selling that stuff because, again, they thought it was going to cut into the market for tie-in novels and official merch.
0: So you kind of had to be on the down low if you wanted to get a hold of that, huh? (laughs)
3: You kind of had to know a guy who knew a guy, and fandom in the early, in like the early nineties, it was a speakeasy, not a kiddie pool. You had to know somebody who knew somebody and know the secret password to get in and and get into the good stuff.
0: <laughs> you had to have a dealer, right?
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you had to have the dealer, and you had to know. It's kind of like, yeah, it was definitely adults only. The assumption was if you were grown up enough to know who to ask you were grown up to handle whatever bag of blood and feathers dead dove that you got
0: oh that's awesome it sounds like you had a lot of uh, experience with print fan fiction which i think is a really interesting era where it was just kind of passing forth on paper so that's that's really cool
3: yeah i didn't get into the the uh the internet until 95
0: now franzi i know that you started in you know on usenet that was your first experience with fandom Were people posting fanfiction on the Usenet groups, or how did you get your fanfiction?
2: My earliest of fanfiction was all online. Now, I know in retrospect that zines were going on concurrently in, like, the same fandoms. I just wasn't very aware of it. Because, again, I was 13. I was not really buying stuff. And so I was on Alt TV X-Files. And originally, I was just, you know, I was interested. It was my new show. I was excited about it. And I was mostly just discussing the canon. And then I remember somebody like explained that there were these stories. and I didn't really understand what they were. And I remember, okay, so this is the archive that became Gossamer, but it wasn't Gossamer yet. This was a random ass FTP site on somebody's like university server prior to Gossamer. And I was like, oh, there's like this other X-Files content. Like, I'm, I'm so confused. What is this? And so I had to get like extra floppy disks to download the whole thing. Which, if you've seen Gossamer lately, is a pretty ludicrous thing to do, especially on floppy disks. People who are like, "I can't use A O three; it's hard. I need an app." You should know this is interesting because back in the day, like, forget a web interface; you had to learn how to use like an FTP client to download very unlabeled (laughs) files. Where and you see these old things, and they're like two K. They don't mean like two K, like two thousand words. They mean two K, like two kilobyte file internet was like really crappy and so it's like well you know if it's just like a few kilobytes i can actually download it but if it's a megabyte oh it's too big you know, like just insane you know like so anyway so i was on usenet and very quickly on usenet and i think even before i was aware of it they started having this convention where you would have like alt tvx files and then you have like alt tv x files creative
1: atxc right
2: and so like Often you would have, if it was a popular fandom, you'd have this other group and like all the fan fiction would be there. And so people will talk about, oh, fandom was hard to find back in the day. And that's sort of true. But once you were on Usenet, almost nobody was 13. I mean, everybody was like a college student and most of them were older than that. They were mostly like tech professionals. So like it was a select group of like very in the know nerds with like a very high barrier to entry. So people weren't super censoring themselves or being like, oh, I can't discuss Slash. The children will see it because like the children <laughs> weren't there generally. So people were, like, posting, like, super explicit and older Scully, and they were talking about what is Slash, what's the history of Slash, and, like, I was sort of like, oh, this is very interesting, but a lot of people talk about, like, oh, like, fanfic, I I learned that for myself, I did it myself without knowing what it was as a child, and Slash, oh my god, I just, like, I had no idea, and, like, for me, it was totally the opposite, I was like, what? You can write these stories? What is this? But, like, Slash, I was like, well, I mean, obviously, like, my parents, like, gay media, our neighbors are gay, like, that's not a big deal, I you know, it's like, the Bay Area in in the 80s. And it was still very homophobic here, but, you know, not on my street. So, you know, I'm like, so I was on, i used that. And the two things I read were like all TV X files. And, and I think I was reading some of the anime groups and like sock by, which is in the society thing, which is like, it was like the bisexual online organizing thing. And I remember how I figured out I was bi. Was uh, somebody on, they were having this dumb argument on all TVX files between, I believe it was like somebody in like the Dana Scully testosterone brigade and somebody in the David Duchovny estrogen brigade. They were basically like dumb fan clubs. And so they, uh, you could like put it in your little signature that like you were in this thing. And so they were like, oh, well, I enjoy the X-Files the most because, wow, Scully. And somebody else was like, well, I enjoy the X-Files the most because, wow, Mulder. And somebody else was like, I am bisexual, so I can enjoy media far more than either of you. And I was like, that's so cool. I want to grow
3: up to be like you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Some of the X-Files stuff was wild. I remember being on an IRC chat for X-Files, and they were all discussing who was the hottest man on X-Files Everybody was just going nuts over, you know, there's, oh, Mulder is the hottest. No, no, cry chick. I love bad boys. Important data to mention to everybody. So these
2: days, and I, I bless it because I am not good at spelling. Now my computer puts little red underlines under things that I have not spelled correctly, which is many things. Back in the day, you didn't have that. And when you have a Ooh. lot of Americans who aren't maybe very good at names that aren't things like Smith and Jones, sometimes on the internet, we uh, spell certain people's names Rat Boy for like all of all TV files history, because Crycheck is hard to spell. <laughs> <laughs> so he was
0: just Rat Boy all the time. <laughs> uh, and everybody just knew who that was.
2: <laughs> Look, Rat-, Rat Boy is easy to spell, okay? Well, also there were FAQs, and this is an so interesting thing because I'm not saying we don't do it now, but back in the day, there were endless FAQs and they weren't like official and by whoever made a thing. They were like fans making an FAQ to explain something to you. Like, I remember being, you know, like 13, 14 and reading like somebody's FAQ on like heroin. What's it like to use heroin? Or there was, there was one on necrophilia that went all into the Karen Greenlee story and all this other crazy shit. And here I am like 13 being like, this is so fascinating. Click, you know, like reading all this like super inappropriate, explicit stuff about like weird, you know, the person who got, like, in legal trouble for, like, creepy sexual fetishes is... But anyway, in fandom we've this a lot too. So like if you were on these uh newsgroups, you'd have some FAQ that somebody updated all the damn time where they're like, here's like the in group joke name for this character, here's what this thing is a reference to, here's this like newsgroup history thing where you're like, don't mention this because we had a wank about it for three years, you know, like so I don't think it was better, because I think I think it's sad that there were a lot of people who would have enjoyed fandom who never knew it existed, so they couldn't join it. So that was sad. But on the upside, because you had to know somebody. There was more of a conscious sense of like mentoring being a thing that you have to do and you have to write like technical help documents. Like there, ne- there needs to be like documentation and specs and stuff for like, you know, social things online because otherwise people don't know anything because you can't, you can't Google anything. Google didn't exist yet in that era. The rest of the question was, how was the fic disseminated? So Usenet in my case, and then you would, uh, you would sort of post it serially on Usenet. And then a few years later, you'd post it serially on a mailing list. And then kind of once it was done, you would sort of clean it up and you would put it in an archive. And pretty soon the archives started being hard-coded, like, HTML web pages, and then eventually ones where you could upload your own stuff. But very early on, you'd be, like, on Usenet, and you'd put in the headers, like, OK to archive or not OK to archive. And there would be a person who was archiving things, and they would grab all those stories, and they would put them, like, in their FTP archive or something else more techie that's, like, you know, you have to, like, download, and it's harder to use. And some of them would use that and put it on, like, a hand-coded HTML page. So anyway, I... I quickly moved on from X-Files because I liked that in junior high. So then I went to high school and I got busy and I had different friends. I got very into anime. And then there was a guy who was our tape dealer. And I was very naive, but I think he was also everybody's drug dealer, literally, also, actually. As I've said online, yes, we watched La Blue Girl at school when the teacher went away. Um, We were very inappropriate teenagers. Um, You couldn't get a lot of anime in that era. So people watched everything. Like They watched whatever BL there was, the corncob nonsense. Everybody's like, oh, God, the corncob. That's Boku no Sexual Harassment, a a classic. Uh, It's about what it sounds like. So, like, you have all the straight boys who are like, I love anime. And we'd be sitting there, we'd be watching, like, the horrible Hentai for Guys and, like, the shoujo series and, like, the thing that's, like, the BL corncob. You know, like, everybody watched everything. And so I sort of got into things with friends. And I was still looking at fanfic online. But for me... I had this very, like, hypocritical, weird attitude where, like, I like to read fanfic, but I wasn't very, like, socially involved in fanfic. And so I was sort of like, oh, well, I read it, but, like, I don't, like, write it. God. Which, like, is so hypocritical and bizarre, but I've seen the same attitude in young people ever since, where they're sort of like, oh, well, I'm into fandom this much, but not more than that. Ugh. Ignoring the fact that, like, if you like to read it, someone has to write it or it won't be there for you to read. But I don't know why this didn't occur to me as, like, a dumb teenager, but it didn't. And it wasn't until... Like 2001 or so That someone in Rurouni Kenshin Fandom wrote a fanfic That was so incredibly wrong And just, ugh, I was so angry They were just wrong about everything <laughs> Um, And so I wrote a fanfic where I didn't, like, directly reference their fic, but I set up a similar emotional situation and then had it be, you know, not literally the most wrong and out of character thing. P.S., whatever your name was, that character would never have committed suicide over a misunderstanding from not reading the end of a letter. He's, like, the craftiest and most, like, planning ahead character in, like, all of Ruini Kenshin and a historical figure who died of cancer when he was old. So, like, you're just wrong. <laughs> anyway, um, that's how I got into writing fanfic. <laughs>
0: I love that story, though, because you had to get so angry to finally put that pen to paper.
2: <laughs> That's correct. Well, they were just extremely wrong. I want you all to know that.
3: Oh, spite makes some damn good fic, doesn't it?
0: Now, I am curious about the FTP software that you were using to download these from the Usenet site. Did you know what you were downloading, like what the story was about? Or was it just like, download it and then find out when you open it up and read it?
2: Oh, like, oh, oh you... You you think there were summaries? There weren't summaries.
0: Yeah, I didn't think so.
2: <laughs> so what you had so so FTP is the it's a what file transfer protocol, something is like a technology right. that still exists. Um, FTP is actually very useful when you're transferring like big ass files in a sort of more techie manner, but we don't tend to use it as sort of noob fans today. It tends to be something that like more techie people are using. So what you would have is some kind of program that was able to like access an FTP server. And as time went on, these were a little bit more visual. So they would, their buttons and bells and whistles were like less command line and more, more visual. But the actual stuff you're downloading, what you can see generally is a file name and the size. And that's it. And you open the plain text file. And if you're lucky on these old fanfics, depending on what the fandom was and how it was originally disseminated, and if they had rules about it, and if they had little acronyms or something, you might see a little bit of a header. And I'm talking like three, four lines of header, and they're not long lines. And they say something like X-Files, maybe Mulder slash Scully. You're lucky if it has that. It might say like Mulder, Scully, and you're like, is it Jen? I I don't know. And then it might have... A one sentence summary, maybe. Like as you get more towards the live journal era, or, or something, you you might have like some kind of blurb. But, but I mean, we're not talking very much. Like the idea that you would, for example, label that there's graphic rape in your fic. I mean, Sentinel fandom has told me that like uh, that's just like shaking hands. We don't we don't label that.
0: Yeah, you know, I ask that because you know I started reading fan fiction in 1997, and by that time, the personal fan websites on Geocities and Angel Fire were a big thing. But even back then, you really just had links to people's stories, and it wasn't very common for people to put summaries or labels on their stories. So, you know, I used to click on a lot of stuff having no idea what I was clicking on, and you actually had to read the thing to find out. So I was thinking it was probably kind of the same thing on the Usenet, where you just had no idea until you opened up the file and was like, oh, okay, (laughs) okay.
2: Some of them did develop elaborate labeling conventions that would be like these little two or four letter acronyms of various sorts. But like, if you discover that, and you don't have the context, like you don't, you're not in the news group with an FAQ or something, you'd have no idea what any of these codes mean. They don't say things like NC-17. They have like, you know, all kinds of weird nonsense that like, is hard to interpret as a more outsider type person. And I'm not talking, like, calling porn lemons in anime fandom. It's not something that's, like, shared all over the place. They would be, like, you know, some news group or mailing list later on maybe had, like, a specific convention. But, you know, you'll even see old websites now if you're, like, in an older fandom and you're, like, oh, I've run out of things. And so you go look at some old website. Even if you were around back in the day, you're, like, oh, crap, I vaguely remember these acronyms, but I don't know what they mean. So that was very common. The place I saw labeling START, and I want to mention this because it's relevant to, like, AO3 and sort of modern stuff. You know who developed the idea of tagging all the things and having these very elaborate metadata systems? Fandom did it a little bit, but it was actually the alt.sex.stories hierarchy that really did that. It's the porn people who are like, let's label all the things ah. in the porn.
1: That makes sense. That's so pragmatic. You know, If you're like going specifically you know, to read porn, you probably know what you want to read, so you need to know what you're getting into
2: porn trope is a like live action conventional porn thing as well to a degree. And so like, I think a lot of the sort of explosion of labeling often and a lot of, a lot of technological, like a lot of tech online has been driven by the porn industry, like the live action porn industry, like streaming video that looks better and things like this. Like a lot of that, like we don't like to talk about it, but a lot of that type of thing tends to be driven by people trying to elaborately collect, categorize, <laughs> disseminate, et cetera, like porn.
1: Well, I mean, who has more motivation than people looking for porn, really?
2: (laughs) This is another thing I like to mention. We're talking about history here, but I think even the present, I notice a lot of like lack of understanding because if you were to go to, say, Space Battles, a forum-based place for fanfic that I'm told has a lot of like straight dudes in it, they do label stuff somewhat, but it's much more like you have to sort of there's a big hurdle to sort of entry. You have to kind of know what you're doing. Uh, there's an expectation that things are high quality and like beta read and like, it's okay to leave critical reviews. And like, you have to kind of read the story to know what it is. Like, that, yeah, sure, there's a blurb or something, but it's not elaborately tagged. It's not a it's not a type of technology where you can really do that as well. I'm not super familiar with it, but I kind of know people who hang out there. And fanfiction.net, it looks a lot like it did back in the 90s where, yeah, you have a summary and people sometimes like list the pairing in the summary, but you'll still see summaries like now from like this year that are like, what if so-and-so went to Hogwarts? That's like the whole summary. And then it's like, so-and-so slash so-and-so, warning, boy kissing, don't like, don't read. Like, you'll totally see that now. You don't see it on AO3, but it's not because it went away. It's because AO3 is different. You know
0: what I mean? Yeah, you can get that information in the tagging system. Whereas with fanfiction.net, there's just a genre and a summary and that's it. (laughs) Well, and the pairing. But uh, but yeah, different beasts. Now, this next question, I feel like, We have kind of touched on this the last little bit that we've been recording here, but I do want to visit this question anyway to see how we can expand on it just a bit. So Sarah and I, in our research, we (laughs) ended up talking to a lot of people and reading a lot of things from people saying that a lot of folks feel like fan fiction and fandom communities were, quote, different back then compared to what fandom and fan fiction communities look like today. We've heard a lot of the older folks saying that. Do you agree with that sentiment? And why or why not? And can you maybe help our audience understand what older folks might be meaning when they say that, that it was different back then and they miss it?
3: Well, again, the, the understanding of old school fandom was that this was a speakeasy, not the kiddie pool. You curate your own experience. You know where the back button is. You can nope out of a story. You don't have to read a story. If something grosses you out, you can click back. You don't have to... There's there's this torches and pitchforks mentality that I see a lot on Tumblr, and that's put me off on a lot of things. I mean, I was looking at Steven Universe, because that would look like a cute little show, and then I took one look at the fandom, because this was the height of the Zami incident, and it's like... This place is insane, because, you know, you draw a character too skinny, or you draw a character too pale, or you draw something that isn't to somebody else's liking, and they just get, they're like the the PTA moms when they found your slash pic back in the day.
0: Oh, Jesus Christ. That sounds like a hot mess.
3: Or the, you know, born-again Christian teacher that's found at the Dungeons & Dragons thing in your backpack and now is convinced you're some kind of Satan worshipper. That was a pain in the butt. So now it's the exact same puritanical mentality, but it's from the other end of the political spectrum, which is just plain weird.
2: It is so weird. Well, they say they're from the other end of the political spectrum, but I agree. They sound exactly like that Chick Track, Dark Dungeons, and or like all of the like video games cause violence, 80s idiots. So what I think is interesting is this question actually made me think of something totally different than what we've been talking about. Because in my experience, When people say things were different back in the day, they don't mean what I think is back in the day. Like Alronix and I both got into fandom early enough that we've been through like several waves of like major shifts, right? And so to me, when I think of sort of classic fandom, I either think of like fandom I wasn't in like zine fandom or like for me, online classic fandom, I'm going to look at maybe like the the height of the Yahoo Groups era. Mm -hmm. And I remember being bitterly angry as a college student. When everybody was leaving for some weird, bad other format that sucked, which was LiveJournal, I was very resistant. But I already had a LiveJournal because, like, a friend of mine was friends with like tech people in Boston, which is like all people who were like first on LiveJournal. So I actually already had one before like everybody got onto it. So I was like, okay, fine, I guess I'll go to LiveJournal. Uh. And I remember then a couple years later being like, wow, that was a very um, grandma attitude for someone who's in college. I'm very embarrassed. So I was like, all right, next time we do it, next time it happens. I'm not going to be a grandma. I'm going to give it like a real try. And next time was Tumblr. And everyone I knew from LiveJournal whined for 10 years about, I don't know what the next thing is. And I'm like, it's Tumblr. I don't know what the next thing is. No, it's just Tumblr. Oh, nothing's won the format war. No, no, Tumblr won it, guys. It it did. But of course, by now, Tumblr has gone and like shat the bed. So like, I, I guess they whined so long that they don't need to join Tumblr. But part of how I got on Tumblr was this total humiliation of having been the person who was like, I don't want to go to that journal. It seems bad, you know, back in the day when it's just like, oh, my God, like, really? I was like, what, like, 22, 20? I was just like, oh, self, why? You know, it's just embarrassing, right? And so, like, I was like, no, even though I hated Tumblr originally, I'm like, I'm going to try. I'm going to figure it out. Like, it will not defeat me. It can't possibly be harder than tech in the 90s, which, like, it wasn't. And and the thing that I notice is, so here's the thing people don't stick around forever. They die, their parents get sick, their children get sick, they have children, they're busy, they change jobs, they move to Dubai and whatever, aren't online much, literally somebody that I knew. And so there's always this sign kind of attrition. And even people who were, like, were in fandom in the 60s, who I know, I know some of them offline, I see them at very specific offline events now, and they do stuff with their friends of 30 or 50 years. And so they're hard to find. Like, if you ask me who's on Tumblr or was on Tumblr until recently, who's, like, a fandom old from the 90s, I can name a bunch of people. But, like, somebody that I know, I think she was into, like, Man from Uncle Zines back in the day and, like, majored in Russian a long time ago because of Ilya, like, women of her same age. And now she just posts about Naruto and Sasuke. So, like, you wouldn't know. Like, there's no way to figure out that that's an old person that knows things. And so where I'm going with this is... When people are nostalgic and you see it and they're like, fandom was different and oh, it's bad now. Those people almost to a person in my experience mean LiveJournal. LiveJournal is the way it always was. LiveJournal is history. Because LiveJournal reigned for like like a decade, like Tumblr reigned for like a decade. And a lot of people got started on LiveJournal, but it hasn't been so many years that they moved to a totally different format. And so you have this thing where they like when people are saying these nostalgic things that uh, one comment that I've seen, I wanted to mention this in in the podcast, like one thing people say a lot is like, we used to post the fic and socialize in like the same space. And then we moved to this new model where we like, it's bifurcated. We have AO3 and then we have Tumblr or we have AO3 and we have Twitter. And like, you know, that's a new method and it's bad. And to me, the change to AO3 plus another thing where you socialize is a move back to the traditional way that it used to be on mailing lists, you know, where you post to the mailing list and then you sort of compile it for long-term reading and like longevity into an archive. Like that that's the traditional way. <laughs> so I guess, I guess what I'm going to say with nostalgia, I feel like a lot of the nostalgia is specifically for the culture of like the height of live journal around like 2007, maybe, uh, or 2006. And that was a wonderful time and I liked it a lot. But there have been so many other fandom things that preceded it or that were going on at the same time that I wasn't aware of, and I think nostalgia is a trap because nostalgia leads you to say, "Hey, it was better back when you didn't have any friends or know anything, so you couldn't find fandom, but I was in fandom, that was better and like i don't I
0: don't like to say that to people, you know right, right, yeah, and I do feel like that's kind of the attitude of a lot of people is oh, well, and you hear people say it like you said, specifically relating it back to the live journal thing because oh, people could have better conversations here and there. And there was a lot more communication going on. And I th- I feel like that's what people miss most.
2: A lot of people are like, well, I like long form text communication. And I will say that the internet, as things have gotten faster and better, you can do video essays. Now you can watch YouTube all day and see somebody's cat on a Roomba. You can look at pictures. Even pictures were hard back in the day. Like the internet was a lot of very plain text. So if you're a very text oriented person, it was more fun and easier on these old platforms that did alienate and exclude other people who were not so text oriented. However, my view about this is, tech that we had in the '90s was garbage, and tech we had in the 2000s was also garbage most of the time. LiveJournal originally didn't like have a search; you couldn't find anything. And so, when people are like, "I could communicate; it was easy," blah blah blah, I know that they think so. But as you can tell from my Tumblr, my Tumblr. Is reblog after reblog after reblog of eight kajillion, you know, indented long form text arguments that go for fucking ever. Like, yeah, yeah, my my history of Phantom Purge's top level post isn't totally insane. It's like a bullet point list and then some, some talk about it. But the reblogs are like eight million threads of reblog. I'm like, I do read them and participate in them. And so to me, it's like, well, if you want to talk to people, meet new friends and have long form text discussion, on your Tumblr, you can do that. I personally don't like Twitter because it's much harder to do that there. But like, and I think it's a more viral and shitty environment that I think promotes bullying. But like, you know, whatever. Other people like Twitter, that's fine. They can like Twitter. But to me, it's like, I do agree live journal is wonderful. But I also think that you can use any technology for anything. Like, like we said earlier, you can have a flame war month by month in a piece of paper that you stapled together and mailed out. You can do that if you want to.
0: No, that's awesome. I really like that point of view that even though we have these newer technologies coming out, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad per se. It's the way that we're using them and we can still use them to have those really interesting back and forth fan dialogues. I actually like that about both of your tumblers. I look at both of them a lot. <laughs> and uh, that's one of the things that I like about both of yours is that you guys have these really awesome back and forth communications with lots of different people on really interesting subjects. So I would agree with that. I think that you're right. Sarah, did you have anything to add to that?
1: No, I, I, I like that perspective because I, I do have sometimes, I think maybe I just don't know how to use Tumblr. It does feel more like sort of a social media kind of scrolling, doom scrolls to me sometimes like Instagram or Facebook. But it does feel like there is a lot of people just sort of shouting out into um, cyberspace. Kind of like Alronic said, there is a problem maybe on Tumblr with like people's kind of performative outrage about things they just want to complain loudly about. But again, Flame Wars were on message boards and Usenet and all that stuff. So I think maybe it's, it's always been like that. I don't know. But there does seem to be something about maybe modern fandom that people, I don't know, people are more easily upset about things. Or, but people grew up now with sort of the tagging systems. And if you don't put a warning or a trigger warning or whatever, people freak out. So
2: I I, so I, have, I have another quick thing about that and then I'll let Elrodix say stuff. But um, so here's the thing. Things have changed. and I absolutely agree. And I don't like puritanical nonsense either. I'm a very like 90s, like free speech is what matters. And like, as I think you guys know, but your, your listeners may not, I was one of the main people writing the terms of service for AO3. And people will come to me and they'll be like, oh, but you wrote these terms of service, but you didn't consider this kind of nasty fic. And I will say for the record that I am the person that had the wide knowledge of wank and gross fic. And I was the one bringing up the sort of test cases of if would this be allowed. And the type of test case I was bringing up was not, oh, it's a slightly problematic kink. The type of test case I was bringing up was, like, on Usenet in the 90s. There used to be a lot of fan fiction that sounded like it was written by men that was, like, violent snuff porn about Gillian Anderson. Not Scully, Gillian Anderson. It was, like, creepy, creepy, like, stalk the hot lady RPF. And it sounded like it was written by men. and like I mean, like, cis, straight, you know, like, the type of people we don't find a lot on AO3, to be honest. And that was my test case for like, this is fic, I think is kind of gross, but like we would allow it because it's legal. And so like, yes, we did fully consider implications as so people will come to me and they'll have this very like new, not new, but like current attitude of sort of like, well, but free speech has limits. And my view is that I'm kind of old school and I don't really feel like free speech has limits. I mean, it does have some, but you know, like don't yell fire in a crowded theater is more my line, not this is disgusting.
3: I, I'm from that era. I mean, I grew up in a very right-wing, military, heavily Christian town, and, yeah, being the bisexual pagan, this was uh, a very hostile environment. So, and I'm used to thinking of, if you start censoring that, then it's not the, it's not the problem, it might start with the problematic fic, but it's going to be, you know, your, your stuff about a, you know, transgender bucky that's going to get censored. It's going to be the stuff with the, the the two lesbian relationships that are going to get censored. It's going to be the, you know, the thin post stuff that's going to get censored. It's not going to be just the problematic fic.
2: People don't understand they are safe because they only go on AO3. Or, well, safe is relative, but, you know, they're safe from being deleted, but not safe from grossness because they only hang out on AO3. But if they were on the other websites people genuinely in this year, 2021, use for fit, they're still going to get deleted, and they're going to get disproportionately deleted for queer content for interracial content, and I don't mean like interracial kink, I mean like, you know, nice, normal, not gross interracial content. Like, these are things people challenge a lot in the modern day. It is not better. It's better because we built a defensive wall of fuck you, you can't delete anything, and that wall is AO3. Here's the thing, though. The internet has changed. It's not fandom. I mean, fandom has changed a bit because it's more open to more people, but the big difference I see is that social media in general has changed. The internet in general has changed. And now things that have an algorithm uh, that's functional, Tumblr has one, but it's not very functional. But like the functional algorithm, like Instagram, like Twitter, like YouTube, as we have all been talking about for the last year or two, it tries to radicalize you. Because radicalize, and it doesn't It's not just alt-right. It tries to radicalize you in whatever direction, because things that make you angry and confused and upset that
3: are extreme make you click.
1: Yes, I love that.
3: Yes, I totally 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 fandom helped get me into p- very progressive politics throughout the 90s and the 2000s. I mean, I was I would literally go from camping out in, at an anti-war protest in front of the federal building to running home and watching my brother-in-law playing Knights of the Old Republic for the first time. So, and yes, I fandom did make me very radical, but the print fandom was very hard left. But there was also a tolerance there for people who were, say, conservative Christian and still wanted to be part of the fandom. That if it's like, okay, fine, so long as you aren't trying to break out the torches and pitchforks, you're cool. And now there's this real attitude towards... I mean, I'm not a conservative or a Christian, but I don't like the attitude that some people are taking towards fans who are. That's that's not what we were about, as
1: as far as I'm concerned. It was all about, you know, so long as you harm none, do as you will. No, I like that. I think fandom, it seems like the best types of fandom bring people together. And I, I love that point that you pointed out, Franzi, that social media is really designed and it's from your own bubble. It might look like, You know, you're always looking at the other side, but those algorithms and those platforms are designed for one thing, which is to steal your attention, which does generally involve making you mad or making you outraged about something. So whether you're pro-Trump, anti-Trump, whoever you vote for, like your little bubble of social media is designed to make the other side look totally nuts, and then you're going to be, you know, reblogging or retweeting or whatever, and it's just designed to tear everyone from the center out and push you into your corners and I think that it's not just political now it's sort of like affecting the fan community a little bit
2: what I notice is so there is some discussion now especially in the last year that you know obviously people are going to listen to this and they're going to hear this and it's going to sound like red flags for I'm an old white person and like racism is cool and I understand why it's going to sound like that to a lot of listeners here's what I would say about all that kind of thing which is that yes ye olde SF communities were very, any ye harm none, except they did harm people and didn't notice. However, that said, there's this thing that happens now where I think that there are a lot of people, some of whom are people of color, but many of whom like say they are and they're lying or they say they're white and they're kind of white knighting and they're like, look, I have this need and this need is that like kinky, dark, weird, rape recovery, whatever. Some fic bothers me and I need to be protected from it. And if you don't agree with that, you're a bigot and blah, blah, blah. And what they aren't noticing is that there are lots of people on every side from every demographic. And what I see a lot of that I really hate is other fans they are like me who are white, who they're very, 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 very worried about looking progressive. They're not worried about being progressive. They're worried about looking progressive. And like, I don't care if you call me a racist. I do care if I am a racist, but I care if I have evaluated what you've said and I agree that I did something bad and then I will fix it. I don't care if you think I'm bad. And so to me, like, you know, I have a friend who blogs a lot about this on Tumblr, de Moi, and she's commented, she's like, yeah, a racism warning, like maybe, but like the reality that this add a racism warning to like AO3, she's like, the problem is A, it won't fix anything. And B, it will be an excuse to pat ourselves on the back and be like, we solve racism and then not do anything else. Mm. And she's like, look, mm. I want blocking features and not just blocking features, like get rid of this harassing troll, but blocking features. Like I found a racist person with their shitty fanfic. I want to hit a button. And now I don't have to see their fanfic anymore, and I never have to think about it again. I don't have to remember their name. I don't need, like, a list where I'm like, this person is a racist. So she doesn't want to think about it all day long.
3: Right. I, I like the idea of being able to block some stuff like, oh, Wesley's 60th birthday or Agony in Pink. Those were two classics from the, the 90s era that are just, that they, they were so wrong. I was a reviewer on badfanfic.net where we, we found the best of the worst. And it's like, yeah, I'd love to be able to block, you know, brain bleach some of that out. And, and here's the thing. I
2: have a lot of friends. and People are always like, oh, you're just a white girl trying to excuse things. I'm like, I know why I sound like that. But I have a lot of friends, and I always have because of anime fandom, who are... Like Indonesian, Malaysian, Thai. There's like all these other people in fandom who often, you know, like a lot, especially if a country isn't as wealthy or they have a lot of tourism or you're just a nerd, a lot of people learn English and they often learn English really well. And like, you don't know, but they're not from an English speaking country. And even if they are, they're not always from the US. And the problem is, I do genuinely believe that we need to do better about protecting people, particularly from shit like Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, but When we're trying to protect people, people have a lot of different needs and they are not compatible needs. It's like they genuinely conflict. And so like AO3's main thrust is to protect writers, not readers. Like it incidentally protects readers, but the whole point of it is it's a repository of stuff you can't delete. And so that's not maximal protection of a reader who needs to not see yucky things. That's maximal protection of somebody who wants to write yucky things and not have someone challenge them. You know, you can make a different archive or you can make a collection that's like, no, no, this actually is safe for this type of reader. Fanfic.net. Yeah, well, <laughs> so fanfic.net is like, it's a it's a case study of what happens when you sort of say you're doing that, but you do it in a hypocritical half-assed way. Oh, right, because people get around it. So what they do is they write all their rape thick, or they write all their dark kink or they write all their racist stuff. And they just don't put any kind of label on it that would tell you what it is, not even the plot, you know, like. So you read a lot of stuff unwarned, whereas what happens on AO3 is you can go click on some tags and you're like, look how many fics there are that are tagged underage. How dare you? But you go on these other things and they're like, oh, yeah, this eight-year-old is having sex with a Pokemon, not very consensually, in the middle of a fic that's rated as, like, like low rating and pl- like this genre is listed as, like, adventure. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks. That, that's real helpful. Just what I wanted to see. Or maybe it is what you want to see. And here's the thing, it's not just fandom, like there's a lot of activism going on in sort of the tech realm of people who are like, hey, I worked for big tech, I had all these ideals, and 10 years later, everything sucks, and I'm mad, who are trying to design social platforms that aren't about corporate greed and destroying mental health for corporate greed. And so like Boba Board, for example, I know the person that's running that, and she's a fandom person, it's this kind of anonymous message board kind of thing, but there's a little too much shitposting, it's a little too visual for my personal tastes, but like, I think it's a really wonderful project where she's trying to make, like, not the next social media, but a next social media for fandom that is, like, an indie thing where you can form a community that's smaller. And she's always sending me these articles that are about, like, like, from tech people that are sort of philosophical articles about, like, what's the sort of unit of internet culture that works. So, like, like a Discord server with 50 active people, great. A Discord server with 300 active people, bad. A Discord server with two active people, bad. I mean, unless you just want to do PMs, you know, like this kind of thing. And it's, like, We need a new way of making social spaces online where, like, if you hate my 90s free speechiness, you can make a different space that's like, look, you're too white, you don't understand, that's not the top priority, I don't want to deal with your, like, white feminism ass, like, go away, you know, or whatever. Like, and that's legitimate, like, you should be able to have a safe space, but Mm. actual safe space cannot be lots of people. So, to give you an example, I do kind of have a trigger. Not... Maybe not like a full-on PTSD trigger, but but kind of in that direction. That is based on me having had a, a traumatic and bad relationship. And that trigger is when I read a fanfic where you have a character that like something really bad happens to them. And they're, you know, sort of shaking and crying. They're, they're like Maybe they were an action hero, but now they're kind of a basket case. And the other character is like, no, I don't care. You're worth it. I'll nurse you through this. It doesn't matter how many years. It doesn't matter if you never get better. Like, I am here for you because you are worth it. I'm like, I don't relate to the character that's being taken care of. I relate to, you don't deserve a functional partner. You deserve to spend the rest of your life waiting hand and foot on some man child that can't get their shit together. Now, that's not what the author means. And that's not what that fantasy is about. But for me, I feel kind of somewhat triggered by that stuff. And it's everywhere in fandom. And you can't label it because it doesn't, there's nothing like, like, woobie fic isn't all that. It's like, there's no, anyway, I'm not, I'm not saying everybody needs to label it for me. What I'm saying is, I am in no way triggered by super gross, like, violent kink. Oh, it was non-con, but I came, so it's fine. No trigger at all. No problem with that. But I am genuinely kind of upset and grossed out by fic that many people would consider to be a 100% safe, vanilla, sweet, nice, this is the good stuff.
3: So there's no way to know.
1: Yeah.
3: Everybody's got their own set of, you know, yum and yuck, so to speak. And I think the word squick really does need to make a comeback because... Trigger, Trigger brings to mind stuff like, you know, my father-in-law diving behind the couch during Fourth of July because he thinks the VC are on him. That's what I think of when I think of Trigger. What some folks are describing, they use that term when it's really more that this grosses me out. And something that is a nuclear bomb should not be used to swat a fly.
2: I do think I, I do think there's sort of an intermediate ground. So like when I say these things bother me, like okay, so there's things that bother me. Like I think it's gross and I click back. And there's things that bother me. Like I don't I don't have a like freak out, but it just it sticks with me and I like it, it ruins my mood or I feel gross for like the whole day or for three days. And like maybe that's not really a trigger, but you know what I'm saying. There's like squicks that are like very serious squicks where you kind of have intrusive thoughts and it bothers you for a while. And there's squicks where you're just like it was oh, yeah. gross, you know. So like, but yeah, exactly, like. Here's the thing. You can't make it safe for everyone at the same time. AO3 is not best for anyone. It's okay for a lot of people. And that's what it's designed to be. And I think that's fine. But we need to acknowledge that to make the internet best for anybody, we need to have lots of different little spaces with different rules. And some people, like, I'll look at a certain space and I'll be like, wow, I'm super unwelcome here. And I am unwelcome there. And that's okay. But I'm very welcome in another space.
0: I really like that point. It's almost impossible to make a huge, big, universal space where everybody's safe. Because like you said, everybody has different needs and those needs often conflict, you know? So hence, giving as much freedom as you can and then let everybody kind of find their own safer, smaller spaces. I'd like to switch gears here just a little bit. One thing that surprised Sarah and I when we were researching fandom history was the cease and desist letters and the lawsuits and takedown notices that were being sent out to a lot of the writers. And you saw this in the 60s, you saw this in the 90s. Did you guys have any personal experience with cease and desist letters or lawsuits or takedown notices? Did you know anybody that had that happen to them? Because we know that quite a few fan fiction writers and fans online had that happen to them.
3: As far as takedown notices and such, I don't know anybody personally, but I was there watching the the news when an Australian member of parliament trotted out agony in pink which is a really gross-out Power Rangers fanfic, and trotted it out in Parliament as an example of trying to pass an internet censorship bill. Oh, no. I'm a computer science major at the time. This was, it was discussed in class as, you know, whether or not about internet censorship. And here I am the only, well, one of, the only one in the class who wrote, ever wrote fanfic or even read it, and two, one of only two women in that entire class. So this was an interesting position to be in of defending fanfic, even the gross stuff, in front of a room full of dudes. Yeah, some of them were arguing for censorship, some of them were saying that it was okay, but they were thinking, why is that stuff, should that stuff even be allowed on there? Because that's not what the internet is for. You know, internet is for super serious stuff, not this stuff.
1: Ah, That's interesting though. That is like, if you're going to defend a position like that's more useful to really take the worst of the worst and even though it's disgusting it's like censorship kind of works both ways as we've sort of already said but anyway that's you said was that in a college class you said you had to defend that
3: oh yeah yeah it was my college class it was my computer science class you know again 50 dudes and me (laughs) so that was a real interesting you know, people want to say they are all about women in tech until, you know, the first day of class. And then it's 50 dudes and you.
0: Now, that thing that happened with Australian Parliament, was that like late 90s or was that 2000s?
3: Yeah, that was about 97, give or take. Yeah, FanLauris got the article on it about when when that was. And I also had come into fandom just, I mean, I came into print fandom around 93 so the people that, there was a scandal in the late 80s that I wasn't involved in because I was too young, but it had hit some people I knew that was running the local British media convention. It was a scandal where it was Blake 7. It was a big fandom in the late 80s. It was a big fandom throughout the 70s and, and 80s in the United States until what happened was the actor who was happily married, very heterosexual, and, you know, this was an era where they weren't as fond of queer content as they are now, found out the hard way that his character was the Phantom Bicycle, and he got pissed. He started threatening defamation lawsuits against a bunch of, of zine writers. Now, at the time, if you sued because there was only a few people that you had to know somebody who knew somebody, if you sued the, the, the bartender of the speakeasy, so to speak, you could Shut the whole network down and it imploded the whole fandom. And that's why one of the rules in old school fandom was you do not show this to any of the content makers. You don't show this to actors. You don't show this to writers. You sure shit don't show it to show creators. If they pretend it doesn't exist, we'll pretend it doesn't exist. And that was a hard and fast rule up until about the mid 2000s.
0: Yeah, yeah, it seems like people learned a lot from their fanzine experiences back for the Star Wars fanzines because when George Lucas found out about the slash being written in the Star Wars fanzines, there were a lot of cease and desist letters that went out there so uh
3: Oh, yeah, <laughs> they they were Lucasarts was throwing banhammers at the Obi Wan Qui Gon web ring up through 2003. I'm really damn surprised at how BioWare was able to sneak Juhani past the radar because Lucasarts still had a no gay in the GFFA policy at that point. And here's BioWare going, "Hold my beer, we're going to put a lesbian Jedi in this group." I still loved Juhani, by the way. She was she was a great comfort character for me because I had just realized I was equal opportunity at that point. So.
2: Maybe if they didn't want everybody to ship Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon, they should have put anything in that movie that was, like, not them being cute at each other that, like, didn't suck.
3: <laughs> oh, yeah, they they, they were kind of cute. And, and here's Disney going, oh, yes, first gay character in Star Wars. And it's two extras in the back, you know, on the side panel that, that are holding hands. I'm like, yeah. Fake first gay character in Disney characters have we had by now, like, lots. I mean, it's ridiculous. Disney was also really bad about suing your butt to non-existence if you started doing any naughty stuff with their characters. I mean, there was the d- notorious story about Harlan Ellison lasting less than a day on the Disney lot due to that. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. L- look it up on-, on Snopes if you want the gory details of that one, but yeah. he He wrote or acted out some naughty Disney bit and got himself escorted off the premises. Yeah, and also fan artists for Disney. If you were drawing Disney art, Disney would sue the pants off you. That's why Disney fan art, I think what happened was in the late, like the late 90s, they forced a daycare to take a mural of Donald Duck off the wall. And it caused such a stink. Yeah, it shut down the daycare because they couldn't pay the legal fees. And it raised such a stink that Disney decided, you know, this is too bad of publicity. We're going to back off. But yeah, one of my fandoms is Tron, which is a, a Disney property, but it's fortunately a Disney property that Disney doesn't care about, so.
2: If, you, if there's one corporation that you should hate, it's fucking Disney, because they're the ones that have, like, hamstrung copyright law.
1: Like, fuck Disney. What's their position, though? I mean, I it's like, as long as you're not making money, it falls under fair use exemption, doesn't it? Okay, so Disney's position on everything is Disney wants money.
2: So, like, there's a scandal right. currently going on where they're, like, not paying someone royalties. Because they're like, well, we bought the rights to the book, but not the part where we have to pay you. And it's like, that's not how contract buyout stuff works. Like,
3: Jesus Christ, Disney. And I forget, who is it? It's some famous sci-fi writer. That- oh, Alan Dean Foster. Yeah, he, he's getting stiffed on his uh, old Star Wars EU royalties.
2: Like, Disney is a bag of dicks. So, like, Disney will sue anybody that they think they can get away with suing. Not because it's legitimate. But because they just think they can get away with it. And so, one thing you see in fandom is people used to have all these disclaimers oh, it's not mine, don't sue. And you'll see fans still who are a little bit old school going, oh, well, um, we needed those for protection. Here's the thing the reason those died out is not because they're old fashioned, but because Francesca and people like her have been like, hey guys, please don't use them anymore, they're dangerous. Because back in the 90s, and even yeah, all through the 2000s, until OTW got popular, basically, the impression was we're breaking the law but it's like jaywalking so nobody's going to slap us too hard but the impression now is we are making the case that in the united states with our very permissive laws which p.s we have more permissive laws than many countries so it's not true everywhere but we are making the case that like nonprofit fan works like all of them are inherently legal but that is not a position fans took in the past and so a lot of fans were like, well, they were horrible to us, but we have to acknowledge that we were breaking the law, so they're right to abuse us in ways that just are because they have money and lawyers and I'm like, no, fuck Disney.
3: Yeah, again, this is one of the reasons why Star Trek became so huge is because Roddenberry was a dirty old man and laughed himself silly at all the rule 34 that he he encountered. Whereas a lot of uh, a lot of the content creators were not as tolerant of naughty stuff. This is why the whole people doing Patreons for fan art and fanfic are like, I, I I am so livid when I see this because, yeah, this could get us in so much trouble. Because it makes it commercial, right? It makes it commercial now, which means that this opens up a whole big Pandora's box. Again, the, the reason why fanfic got banned as much as it did was because people thought it would break the market for tie-in merch or... The official content. I mean, Anne Rice still bans fan band works. Let's be real. They also, in
2: many TV showcases, felt that the overall value of the brand would be lowered by the queers getting queer cooties on it. That is a lot of what they thought, really.
0: Yeah, they made that argument that it would somehow deter from the original content.
1: So even though it's non-commercial, they're trying to come at it an angle where it actually... It makes a commercial impact, therefore it's not fair use. Is that fair to say?
3: Yeah, if you can make money off of it, it's like if nobody's making money off of it, it's free advertising for the studios. The instant somebody starts getting paid for commissioned fanfic, somebody's getting money for a corporation's intellectual property, and then the corporation is going to be faster than flies on shit on the rest of us fan writers, shutting us down hard, just like they did in the 80s and 90s.
2: Yeah, I would I would also say, so like, it depends when you're looking historically. So nowadays, now they're going to make the argument, mostly because OTW spanked them at the copyright office and so on. So like, now, now they're starting to occasionally lose. So now they're a little bit more wary. So they're going to say things like, well, when you're selling things, that's harming our commercial market. And so it's not fair use. What they used to say was not, oh, it's not fair use because of this actual justification I had to actually think of. What they used to say is like, well, there are characters, so like... You thought about them in an unauthorized way, so it was wrong. I mean, like, like they didn't even get as far as making a real argument. They were just like, obviously, it's illegal. Obviously, you can't. Obviously, I can do whatever. But you see it, like, this is not just fandom. This is a broad issue of you will see people at the top, at the most unmarked, at the most powerful, do things like use temp music they don't have the rights to, and then it accidentally gets out, and they're like, whatever, no big deal. Or you'll see people, men, steal creative ideas for women all the time and be like oh well like we were collaborating but not the other direction so like when a fanfic writer is like oh i made them gay because i felt like making them gay it's like oh no
0: drama (laughs) how dare you yeah
2: (laughs) (laughs) fan art you're wasting your time but when some man who's like i'm a modern artist draws like porny fan art oh i'm sorry important intellectual art that's like Some lady with her tits out. That's like, that's cool. That's fine. I don't mean to hate on like dudes, cheesecake art of women. Like that stuff's fine. I don't, I don't mind that it exists. But what I'm saying is that the idea of like, is it yucky fanfic that's probably illegal? Oh no. Or is it like, I am an artiste, you know, like it depends a lot on just bigotry and social expectations about what kind of person counts as what. When you look at, like, the legal arguments people are making, they're often kind of disingenuous and they're very cultural arguments. They're not really legal arguments. They're sort of like, this person does high art, so everything is cool. And, like, this other person is, like, a weirdo doing a weirdo thing, so it's bad.
3: (laughs) You know? Or you can justify it under the protected mediums of satire, which is how Mad Magazine and Wally Wood got away with so many potshots at Disney. If you can BS it as satire or criticism... You can get away with an awful lot. There's a whole law library for Mad Magazine on that one. But unfortunately, a lot of fan fiction is not... Unless you're writing crack fic, really doesn't fall under the satire or parody category.
2: Right, but I mean parody can be brought... I guess what I'm saying is that like, I think on top of... You're, you're right, but on top of what you just said, I think there's also a tendency to assume that the art of, say, women... First of all, that all art by women is by teenage girls. And second of all, that all art by teenage girls like cannot have a deep meta commentary level that could be considered parody whereas by men obviously it has that intellectual level i mean this is a very common stereotype that people have without even realizing it so you'll see that like the way people argue about things often has these other layers of identity-based bullshit
3: too so you have to kind of watch out for that when you're kind of looking at the dumb arguments that like studios or whoever are making The whole idea of fanfic being just teenage girls that's a very very recent thing it used to be you know the crazy middle-aged cat lady, but it was still the same kind of sexist bullshit.
0: Yeah, I think, Sarah, you and I were talking the other day about where does that stereotype even come from where, you know, 13-year-old girls, because all the fanfic writers we know are, like, in their 30s and above, so, like, where are all these 13-year-old writers?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I think it was one, I think it was, like, one or two sort of surveys, and they probably didn't get that many responses, but then, you know, just try to draw from that and of course, the only people sharing their information that freely are usually skew younger. So those are the only people that are like, oh, I'll take your fan fiction survey, you know, <laughs> it might be something like that. I actually think it's not even a fandom thing.
2: So when you look at fandom surveys that are like a little bit bigger, the one that everybody tends to point to when you look at like other fandom meta, and they've like reuse a different person's data, it's always Centrum Lumina, Lulu on Tumblr, I think Centrum Lumina is her Tumblr name. And she did the AO3 census, which I think was like back in 2013 or something. And so it's called the AO3 census, but it was done on Tumblr uh or, or well, it was mostly disseminated by Tumblr so it's kind of a, like AO3 Tumblr crossover I would say in t- 2013 is probably most of AO3 but skewing younger out of overall AO3 just based on sort of stereotypes of who's where that I know but it's probably reasonably representative that survey to quickly summarize it the results looked very similar to every other survey I have ever seen of slash fandom of professional BL like readers who aren't fanfic people of like sort of Queerer fandom spaces like that Not necessarily all fan fiction of all kinds But sort of the type of content that's on AO3 When you find it other places Other surveys of those people tend to look Similar to these results so I feel like They are like I wouldn't quibble over One or two percent there but I'd say like broadly Speaking they're accurate and what they showed Is overwhelmingly AFAB assigned female at birth mostly female Big chunk of non-binary And like a few men You know like not many men and I mean, like, like men included trans men in this case. Like obviously trans men are men. They are in that category. But even out of that, it's like more non-binary than men. And that is what these kind of spaces often look like. And anyway, so sorry, that was not relevant to the age process. So in the age categories, it did skew younger than people that I personally know. But it skewed very kind of like college and kind of like mid-20s. Lots of people there. Lots in 30s. Kind of a long tail. And like some younger, I think. But it did not show that everybody was a 13-year-old girl. It really, really didn't. And this is something at like the height of Tumblr talking about AO3, talking about a space where, like, people in that space at the time were like, oh, but fandom is, okay, well, maybe we're not 13, but we're all, like, 17. It's like, the survey's showing you're all, like, 24, guys. And, And Tumblr's own demographic stuff about Tumblr usage showed that Tumblr itself was not mostly teenagers. And so, like, there was the same amount of, like, people under 18 as, like, over 55, something like that. And, like, Again, we're seeing like a ton of like late college up through, you know, the rest of the 20s and like a good chunk in 30s, but not as many. That kind of, that was sort of the look of Tumblr, which is much more in line with what I think of fandom as being like, though my personal friends tend to be a little bit older. What I think is going on is that platforms like Tumblr get investment capital by saying that young people like them. Look how many under 18s are on my product. You can brainwash them with your advertising for at least 25 years. Not like those olds who already know what brands they like and never change their minds. (laughs) Or know how to use ad block. Yeah, that too. Like advertisers are still in the mode. You see for TV shows too. They want like the young male demographic and nobody else for TV. That's why everything good gets canceled. So they they have this thing where the advertising mentality is very old school. They're like, well, people like decide if it's like Ford or like whatever when they're like 20 and then they buy a Ford for the rest of their life. And it's like no one buys that way now. That's not what consumers look like anymore. But that is how advertising thinks. So it's very important to have very young people on your platform to get venture capital because also PS my hobby horse a lot of what we use on the internet today is not funded by a profit model where you pay money for actual things you want, and then that's what supports the service. It's not even supported by advertising. It's supported by venture capital that thinks they can monetize it later, but they don't know how. Wow, I would have thought it was advertising, but that's that's really interesting. Tumblr is a like complete money sink. It's always been a disaster. What Tumblr was, was a shiny new product where the youth went there, and maybe we can figure out how, like, let's build it, and then we'll monetize it. Let's build it, and then we'll monetize it. And what always happens is that when you build it first, you get this great community that likes how it is then, but it's horribly, horribly expensive to run with infinite image and video uploads, and you now need money, and just ads aren't going to make enough money or not in the right way, or your ads, you don't want porn next to your ads, unless they are porn ads. And if they are porn ads, they're for like, cishet dude porn that like, a lot of us don't like, you know, it's the wrong porn. And so you end up with this situation where cyclically modern internet stuff is built under the sort of the the idea that it's a, a cool indie startup, and then somebody sends it a few million dollars to see what it can do. And those few million dollars are what's paying salaries But there is no like end game that makes sense that was thought out ahead of time that can actually work. And so everybody loves it in its heyday and then it goes kablooey. And then we have another one and then it goes kablooey. And this happens over and over again lately. And things like the Tumblr titty ban, those are happening because we are investing our time and effort into infrastructure that
1: inherently has no longevity and sustainability. Man. Yeah, I'm learning a lot. So I'm just kind of like absorbing all this (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> no, and I like that point about possible reasons why that stereotype of 13-year-olds writing fanfiction persists. It's disturbing. Venture <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: capitalist, Jesus.
0: Um, I know, right? No, Sarah and I, when we were younger, just getting into fanfiction, both of us had experiences with those early prototype fan-run fanfiction archives. And you guys all remember them like in the 90s and the early 2000s. I was just wondering if either of you had any experience with your favorite archives. Were any of you involved in running archives?
3: I ran the Galaxy Rangers fanfiction archive for a while. We all had a mailing list, and so I would be compiling the stuff from the mailing list and other people, some of the, they'd put it on their own personal websites and I'd just compile it and put it on mine, my little Geocities account thing. Other fanfiction, I don't think I was involved with any other particular fanfiction archives, but it was mostly just copying a bunch of stuff from the mailing list and uploading it in a document format. It was a pain in the butt. Yes, it was very pain in the butt time intensive, especially if you got something that was in German, because again, Galaxy Rangers was more popular in Germany than it was in the United States for some bizarre reason. And so I'd get occasional fanfics in German and I'd have to go and fix the characters that like the estets and the umlauts that did not render properly on an American keyboard.
2: Multilingual support, like multi-character support in the modern day, is a lot better than it used to be.
3: (laughs) Oof. Yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, being able to put italics and bold in a a fanfic was, you know, an amazing thing. You you used to have to use uh, asterisks and double asterisks to do italics or bold.
2: Yeah, like, like, keep in mind that really old school internet fanfic stuff is it's plain text. It's like literally a plain text file with no formatting. So uh, yeah, uh, those were uh,
3: different days.
0: <laughs> Some of the first uh, Star Trek fanfictions, like the old toss ones, they were all just plain text format files that were getting passed around on the internet. I remember that quite vividly. <laughs>
2: Not that I knew about it at the time, but the zine era, I mean, okay, technically there are still old school zines, and of course there are now new zines, but, but the sort of full-on original zine era did persist way into the 90s and, and even beyond a little bit, partly because in that era of, like, the internet is garbage, you can have a fanzine that has actual typesetting that's nice and, like, some art in it that, like, looks good instead of the only art ever anywhere on the internet is one tiny picture and you don't load it on purpose because your dial-up is shitty. And so like, I I do think that that helped (laughs) the internet being kind of garbage did help print sort of stick around. So like (laughs) these days, print is more of a sort of specialty because you think print is cool thing. But, uh, um, oh, so archives. So, uh, I did not help run any archives except for, I guess I had like a, a hand coded page that went with a mailing list that I got stuck with the ownership of, but like in general, I did not help run any sort of proper archives, but I did use a lot of them. I was very active. On like the very wanky forums on Fiction Alley, Fiction Alley Park was the the forums, Big Harry Potter Archive. I think that's the one they started when Cassie Claire got kicked off of Fanfiction.net for plagiarism. It was a good archive, and I read on I read on many many archives when Fanfiction.net banned NC17, which at the time they called NC17 before they got in trouble for using movie ratings, which are proprietary. You can't use them not for movies. I'm not kidding, they're like intellectual property. When that happened, I and a lot of other people left fanfiction.net in a huff in 2002. And it was only doing fandom history stuff and meta that I sort of came back to like look more at fanfiction.net many years later and realized how much whole different eras of fandom had happened on fanfiction.net. That like, I, like in my mind, we all left in 2002 and went to LiveJournal and like we did our gay porn on LiveJournal and like fanfiction.net, that's like old. No one uses that now. But like it was super wasn't true then and it's still not true now. I just didn't know. But when I left, I was in anime fandom. And anime fandom that wanted to write, like, Inuyasha porn all went to Media Miner, which still exists. It is still up. It's a little clunky, but uh, it's still there. And, like, I think more than people realize, there was this huge era of archives where there were just so many different cool archives, and many of them are actually still up today. Not all of them, but some of them are definitely still up. And it was sort of, like, there was an era when that was more normal. Like, you would, if you had some tech skills, and you were like, my fandom is very big, and it doesn't have enough of like the specific type of archive I want, or my fandom is tiny, and there's no archive, you would just like make an archive. And originally, when OTW started, there was kind of this idea that, oh, like, it'll be like a new open source software, like eFiction, or like, I think the automated archive, whatever the other one was called, because there, there were a couple of these kind of packages you could use like a wiki package, you know, you use this package to make your own little prefab archive though they didn't all use that package and the thing is you do need to be more technical than say i am but you don't need to be wildly techie compared to the fairly technical level of like people who were doing internet things back in the day and so lots of fans who were able to be online at all like were able to start these archives and there were a ton of them and what i think was really cool is that in the fandoms that have a lot of really good ones like tolkien fandom has had a bajillion and like harry potter fandom had a bajillion you'd have one that was like kind of thematically, it wouldn't necessarily be one ship, but it would be, like, very thematically similar. Or it would have beautiful headers everywhere that were related to the fandom. Or it would have, like, a bunch of sections for, like, nonfiction meta that went with the thing. Or, like, episode commentaries or, like, screen caps or, like, other things that were, like, you couldn't put on AO3 necessarily. Or you put a meta on AO3, but, you know, like, screen caps, you can't really put on AO3. And it would all kind of be combined. But the whole layout would be very specific. I'm not super into Doctor Who, but there's that wonderful Archive Teaspoon uh, you know, A Teaspoon and Open Mind. It's like the big Doctor Who archive and it's organized by Doctor. And so like, if you've only seen a little bit of Doctor Who and you're like, oh, well, I kind of want to read about like the first Doctor. Like everybody likes Four, everybody likes like Nine and Ten, but like, oh, I wonder what people write about One. And you could just go there. On AO3, you would have to have the equivalent of like first Doctor centric as like an ex- extra tag, you know, or something. But this thing is organized by this. And I think that's really cool for like a single fandom or single topic archive because you can really you can get a specificity of of like visual presentation like how is it laid out what are the headers look like you can get a specificity of like what is the metadata which you just can't get on something like AO3
1: I remember getting into a Star Trek Voyager fandom and just there's probably a, a lot of Star Trek archives had that but yeah just every pairing had a little menu and click that and it had cool pictures and all oh, this is like this is everything you want right here this whole list uh, and I remember thinking that was really cool And I think also like nowadays, it's a lot easier to find things like screen caps or
2: episode reviews or transcripts or whatever. But like, obviously, there were times that was really hard to like to find it at all. Now it's hard to like sort through how much there is. But like, I think you definitely also found like older sites where it was more important to sort of combine the different like resources into one space.
0: Yeah, it was definitely kind of like rite of passage, I think, for a lot of us that got into fandom early on, when the internet became kind of a thing because we all kind of remember going to these different individual archives and having our experiences there and everything. But I think it's also very interesting to see how many of those archives have imploded, disappeared from the internet, you know, like all of these crazy things happen while they were great places. You know, having all of these individual archives pop up also had dangers with them because they were so easy to disappear, I guess, if that makes sense.
2: What I would say to people is that they should probably recognize like, you want to keep in mind as a fan who's, like, a reader or whatever, AO3, I hope and I think, is going to have longevity because it has an organization. But fanfiction.net is run by one guy. It's always been owned by one guy who sort of made it on a whim, and then it, like, I guess he thought it was fun, and then eventually it was profitable, but it's getting less popular, so someday it won't be profitable. And I, I don't know that he ever take it down, but it's like, what if it, like, had a big database issue or something? Like, you cannot guarantee Just because it's been around a long time and you think it has longevity, that proves nothing. Websites go down all the time.
0: Yeah, exactly. And we saw that a lot, I think, in the 90s. We saw that a lot in the 2000s. You know, you saw all these sites pop up and then they would just kind of die out, disappear. Sometimes people would run out of money, like the people that were running them. (laughs) Or sometimes you had mods that would do, you know, a lot of infighting and some crazy drama happened that way, I think, with a couple of archives that got nuked because of that.
3: Oh, yeah, that was happened to the Johnny Quest Archive. Damn. Uh, yeah, somebody, uh, it was the Real Adventures of Johnny Quest Archive, and, yeah, one of the archivists had a very nasty divorce, started picking fights with the other two mods, and they said, I'm out of here, and the person that was going through the nasty divorce didn't have the time or the spoons to handle it anymore, so she took the whole thing down. <gasps>
0: oh, And it just disappeared.
3: Oh, yeah, it it imploded.
0: Yeah. So again, while they're fun places and we have like all these great memories, I think it is important to point out to everybody that they're not guaranteed safe places for fan fiction because they can disappear.
2: I think also like, here's the thing also, though, like, I think there's a a desire now that i see in a lot of people where they're like, well, I just want to go to one place and not have to deal with a lot of extra nonsense. And and I totally agree with them. But one thing fans used to do is a lot of fans would cross post their fic, like said fandom has 12 archives, your fic is relevant to six of them, you post on at least four of those six. You just don't see that so much. Now. I mean, you see a little bit of cross posting between like fanfiction.net and AO3. But I don't see a lot of interest or willingness to be like, Oh, here's a, another archive that's cool. I'm going to post to that one as well. And like, yes, AO3 has that infrastructure and that is really good. And I think it's the only one that has that kind of infrastructure because all the other ones are either one person's deal where they could die or go broke or they're like a corporate thing where like Yahoo keeps deleting all of fandom history, and all of internet history, like without asking, you know, like. But that said, while I think AO3 is wonderful and I don't have any reason to think it's in trouble, you can't even guarantee that that organization will last forever. I mean, if you're talking 10 years, sure. But if you're talking like I'm a librarian and I archive like text, you know, physical textual books from like the 1700s, you know, like on that scale, is AO3 going to last? I don't fucking know. Like,
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, that's so true. That's so true. But by all reasonable measurements, it's the one that has the best chance of, of, you know, long lasting and everything, which is good. And I agree with you. Like, you know, it's funny. I'm on the fan fiction Reddit page a lot. And it's very common for people to cross-post, like you said, between AO3 and fanfiction.net. I feel like I see a lot of people on there who are wanting to cross-post their stories to other places as well, besides the big two, and they just don't know where to go. So I don't know if there's just a lack of places, or if we're just not there culturally anymore, where we know about all these little fan-run sites anymore, or, or what it is. But I see that quite a bit on Reddit.
3: One of the things I do appreciate about Reddit is that it does sort its laundry, so to speak. Tumblr is annoying to try and find, if I want to find a specific fandom on there, I can, you know, type the search function and I can get some, you know, about 50% shot of getting what I want. Reddit, I can type what I want and pretty much get it. I'm not also scrolling through a bunch of political posts or a bunch of drama in order to find what I want. No, no I was just going to say,
0: yeah, yeah. That's been my experience, too, with Reddit. I've been on there for a couple of years, and, and I like it. You know, you could just kind of pick and choose what you want to read, and, <laughs> and that's that. Everybody's pretty cool. But it's interesting talking about the different archives and the different things like that. It's also interesting, I think, talking about the um, notable purges throughout fandom history as far as, like, fan fiction purges go. Right. Because not only do you have archive collapses, but you have all of these random fan fiction purges happening on different websites. The earliest one I could find on Fanlore was Tripod in 2001. Do you guys recall any other purges that were happening before the Tripod purge?
2: So I actually I, I wrote myself some notes before, before this episode when I, uh, when I saw your questions a while ago to sort of think about that. Even on fan lore, there are some, like, timelines and stuff, and there's some stuff from the 90s. I wasn't personally involved with any of it, but what I will say is, when we talk about purges, we do talk about things like strike through that I'm sure we'll get to in a minute, but we also talk about, like, you know, like, for example, Yahoo deciding that Yahoo groups don't matter and just deleting the whole thing, that is a purge in a sense, right? When you go back to the very early internet, I personally was not involved in this because I it was not, we didn't have like a family account. I had like a stepdad deep in tech who was like, well, what do adults in tech do? So I just went directly to Usenet. However, very early internet for like families tended to be CompuServe, Genie, Prodigy, and then like later AOL. And what makes those different is that they had like proprietary forums that were for like only that service. It wasn't like, oh, internet access. It was like, you're accessing like this set of forums because this is an era when the internet does not mean the web, and we actually said the World Wide Web out loud once it was invented. And you know, like the web got big in 1995. Like we went from no one's heard of it to TV ads have HTTP, you know, like, it read out in the in the TV ad, and it was like over the course of 1995. is like when that happened, right? And so these early services had. Spanish interaction that like I had no way to access it. And as a historian, you don't really have much access where people were building these Spanish communities on these specific proprietary forums that were later completely deleted when those things went out of business and no longer exist. So there have been horrific, complete total purges of platforms since the beginning of the internet.
0: Yes, I remember those proprietary platforms. Uh, my family was an AOL family. 1997. That's when we got the Internet. And uh, I was telling Sarah about this the other day that uh, my first fandom ever was Space Cases. It was a a Nickelodeon show. And yeah, AOL had these proprietary message boards for the kids. And that's where I was. And all that shit got deleted eventually, you know. And so it's really sad that all that history kind of went away. But, uh, But yeah, you're right. Things get deleted all the time off the Internet. We had those proprietary platform purges. And then I remember when Tripod happened in 2001. I know that Angel Fire and Geocities eventually went down, and we lost a lot of fan content when that happened.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's been a million different deletions. You know, in terms of like intentional deletions where people went through and like grudge reported all the Twilight fanfic on fanfiction.net or, or like what have you, there have obviously been only a more limited number of those, though still very many. But, but yeah, I feel like the history, our history is a history of both intentional and just kind of accidental. Like, not only just having accidental, but sort of Things where we got deleted because we didn't matter and we were kind of the random plus one on some platform and like it went away because the overall platform went away, but like no one noticed that maybe we mattered and we didn't maybe record our own stuff well enough. It's very much, I think, like looking at the history of documents of I'm sure somebody will take offense because they think fandom doesn't matter, but I think fandom does matter. It's like if you look at the history of any very marginalized group or any like subculture. It's very hard to have like queer history. We don't have a lot of documents. I don't know, goth history or whatever. Like you have some things, but there's a lot you just don't know because no one bothered to save it or people intentionally deleted it because they they burned it or what have you because they thought it was stupid. Um, And you see that a lot with fandom.
0: Did either of you ever have works purged off of fanfiction.net when that happened in 2002?
3: I didn't, but that's because I don't write. I think out of the uh, 100 plus stories I've written, I think maybe three might have any kind of sexual content in them. It's just not my thing.
0: They wouldn't have been on the target radar then.
3: <laughs> the only thing that I got was flagged by saying that I used song lyrics in one of my fix, And so, okay, fine, I had to purge the song lyrics out of it and then re-upload it. But yeah, unfortunately, I can't help with some of the fandom discourse because... I really don't write explicit material. It's just not sexually explicit material. It's just not my thing. And even if I did write sexually explicit material, it's usually het or it's fem slash. It, it's not the male male stuff that gets all the publicity. I'm afraid.
0: Now, Al were you on Live Journal?
3: Oh yes, I was on Live Journal. Uh, I did a lot of role playing on Live Journal. One of the things I do kind of miss is the kink meme because Tumblr does not allow you to do as anonymous as live journal with those those things and make outrageous requests.
0: Yeah. People do those kink memes on DreamWith now. They're alive and well there.
3: Oh magnificent. I'd always find a way to fill the prompt with some genfic.
0: Oh yes, yes. Uh I'm really active in the uh the Cobra Kai fandom right now and so I'm I'm all over those Cobra Kai kink memes on Dreamwith. <laughs> but um Obviously the Live Journal has to be one of the things that we cover today because Live Journal I think the purges that happened on Live Journal kind of sparked a lot of the stuff that kind of led up to the idea that we should create an archive of our own. Do either of you guys remember like that whole LJ strike through purge thing that happened in 2007?
3: I remember it in that I was trying to find some of my kink memes or trying to find some people's accounts and found that um they don't exist anymore, and I wound up with a bunch of Russian language nonsense because it sounded like the yeah the the owners changed. It became some Russian corporation, and so people were just being run off the platform. And you'd hear about it because yes, Russia's not very LGBTQ friendly.
2: <laughs> if only it were all Russia. So boy howdy, did I hear about Strike Through? You asked me about fanfiction.net, so briefly, I did not get deleted off of fanfiction.net because they did give some warning, not a lot, in 2002. And when I heard that they were getting rid of adult fic, I was incensed, deleted all my fic on purpose, and left in a snit for Media Miner, which did and does still allow porn. Live Journal. So, like, the thing about Live Journal is it's a very classic story of internet stuff in terms of, like, the era and who was involved. So. It starts out, some tech guy makes a thing he thinks will be cool, and his tech friends use it for their, like, actual journal journals, and yay, spirit of the old internet. He promises to never, like, make it shitty and salad and blah, blah. And then it gets sold multiple times, of course, as he loses interest and goes on to other projects, or it gets more expensive to run, and it's not just his buddies and friends of friends. And so first it was sold to Six Apart, and then later to Russians. And the thing is, like... Yeah, it's annoying, but it's also like how can I really blame some tech startup guy who was having fun and made a thing and then got distracted by a new tech startup? Like that's how it works in tech, right? And so everyone who put all this effort and years of their lives into like making cool stuff on LiveJournal, they didn't own the property they were building their house on, only the house, and then the property was sold. And so straight through I was somewhat in Harry Potter fandom still and I knew all the porn writers and so I was not personally directly affected by it, but I right away started seeing all this screaming all over my friends list. And here's the thing that people don't remember. That wasn't what inspired the post that was like the AO3 post. It wasn't at all. That post was like a week or two old at that point. But much like my like history of fandoms purges post that like two people have reblogged and then Tumblr announced things like right then, you know, like when you post something and then the object lesson in why you were right happens like five seconds later everyone notices so like we'd already been like oh yeah this archive idea people were like well, i don't know like that seems really cool but like i don't think you can pull it off it's too big of a project maybe you should do something more modest and then live journal shat the bed and everyone went like fuck we really need an archive right now <laughs> um, but it was not the reason the posts originally got made
0: was that more the fan lib thing
2: it sure was <laughs>
0: We would love to hear a little bit more about that FanLib thing, if you guys know anything about that, because we tried our best to do some research on that, huh, Sarah? And we were having some trouble kind of understanding, like, what the fuck was this FanLib thing?
1: <laughs> right. I think the main thing for us was, like, understanding exactly how FanLib was monetizing. I, I can sort of understand about by reading FanLore, but I don't know. Yeah, any information you guys have on that would be great. Venture capitalists. That's my answer to everything. So, FanLib.
2: A classic story about all the things I've already been bitching about. So some dudes looked at fandom and said, oh, wow, there's this sphere of human activity with a lot of activity, but no monetization. They must be silly girls who've never thought about monetizing and don't know how to do it. This is a profit that's just, Being left by the wayside, I can come in with my man knowledge and monetize it and make a kajillion dollars and look how great I am. Like, I'm mocking this because I see this a lot. Like, I've had male friends say this to me. Not like they've done a product, but they're like, oh, you know what you could do? And I'm like, "Uh, yeah, every shitty man, fake entrepreneur, moron says this to me when they find out that there is a sphere of human activity with a ton of activity, but it hasn't been monetized. So, the deal with them was... Some dudes who I think they'd already done a couple of, like, tie-in contests where, like, yeah, it was, like, fanfic or whatever, but it was, like, write a little, like, gen fic along certain lines to, like, win a contest where, like, the official people who run such and such a soap opera or whatever will, like, you know, give you a prize or something. Anyway, they had done some stuff like that. And they were like, hey, we can do, like, a big fanfic archive, but it's like that. And so they had more of a monetization plan than a lot of these things do. But, again, they were just a venture capital thing. Their salaries were coming from venture capital, Period. And so they built an archive. They intrusively sent out invitations to people that they perceived to be like influencers in an era when we kinda of didn't talk about influencers yet all that much, at least not quite in the same terms. And it was similar to how like if you go on our fanfiction on Reddit now, people are always like, Hey, I got this weird ad and like my private messages on fanfiction.net for like some new archive. I don't understand. Like they were kind of doing that thing where they were like sending these weird
0: Like the web novel guys now.
2: Right, like i'm a nigerian prince please join my fanfic archive it's like what <laughs> who are like what's going on and so like so a lot of people were like these guys are bullshit artists fuck them and everybody experienced said that for the most part and especially the slashers and especially the slashers who like porn were just like i don't know who the fuck these douchebags are but like they're bad news oh but a lot of fans and i, I do want to say this a lot of fans joined their archive in good faith really liked the community really kind of maybe even got kind of got their start there and like loved it it died after like one year the rug was pulled out from under them and then the rest of fandom laughed at them and they had a real hard time finding like a next home because the rest of fandom was like you joined the hated enemy uh evil noobs destroying our community and they're like my home just got deleted i'm sad And like it wasn't that many people that i saw like this but it, it was kind of sad i was like guys don't be mean to them like come on there were like, a couple of like little live journal communities for like expats of FanLib who were like, oh, but it was nice. So I think it was one of those sites that I love for young people and it had a lot of like little contesty stuff and like a lot better, like if you wanted to find a beta or like get critique, I think it had some good stuff for that. But that said, you know, the rest of us looked at this thing and we're like, this is bad news. We need to steer clear. And the deal with it was they always had said, and like we all knew, they were going to have a lot of tie-ins. So there would be like an officially sponsored contest by TV show such and such where you could, like, try to write the right fanfic. But the problem is that when you do that, guaranteed you have a ton of censorship of content, A. And B, the fanfic people are competing for the attention of the showrunners or the actors or whoever. And for, like, old-school slashers who are like, yeah, they're all going to be homophobic and freak out, we're competing for the attention of our friends who read our fic. And... You know, people are like, Fanish gift economy, all this kind of thing. And, like, there are multiple ways to do fandom. But the way I like to do fandom and the way that inspired AO3 and that style of community, the point is a community. And when you try to insert this suck up to the powers that be, you get, like, the current Twitter situation where, like, various crazy people are like, hey, voice actor, please validate this ship and not that ship. And, like, I think it's creepy, but I also just think it's different. Like, that's not my community. And those people are not compatible with my community that is about sharing fanfic on a like everyone's kind of a writer everyone's kind of a reader we're all peers not i am a patreon content creator and you are my audience that's not how we do things on the ao3 side
3: exactly exactly and that's another one of the this is why you don't show the actors or content creators Fan fiction. This is why it's like you pretend it doesn't exist and we'll pretend we don't write it. Yeah, and it's not just because they'll come after you. Because even when they're sympathetic and
2: they don't come after you, when you are performing in public for Hollywood, it is different from doing fandom in a fandom space for fans. They're just different. I mean, it doesn't mean the other one necessarily is always bad, but it is different. So anyway, so we already knew they were doing that. So we didn't like that because, you know, we're writing explicit slash and we're like, well, what's the first thing they're going to ban? They're going to ban probably like explicit stuff entirely and probably like non canon ships would be the kind of thing they would often ban just just based on history of this kind of thing and there've always been these contests like write something we're not calling fan fiction but it is fan fiction for like a little official contest for like the person that owns the rights it's a perfectly normal thing and it's totally fine it's just that's not what we were doing and so already that was suspect and then fanlib was mostly being run by cis men which is a bad sign because even in the more cis man heavy parts of fandom like our fanfiction on reddit which you know it's on reddit so it does have more cis men it's still like mostly not cis men the only places that might be majority cis men are like small specific pockets right so like the fact that this thing was run by men we were just like mm, i don't know and then here's the thing it wasn't just that they were men it was that they were men with a dodgy like like, even with the tie-in contest, we were like, how are you really going to fund it, though? Like, it's being funded by Venture Capital. How is it going to be funded next? And, like, they didn't really know. And also, they made it, like, very explicit that they were idiots by advertising it with this ad that I think is screencapped on Fanlord, where they had, like, a parody of, like, the 90-pound weekly ad. Which is like some old TV ad for like basically you can be like you can go from this ninety pound weakling man to like a man with big muscles and you're sexy and like it's like it's like a classic famous like American culture thing and so they had like a ninety pound weakling like take your fic from a ninety pound weakling to you know this muscle man but like this is an ad that presupposes that the shape of a nerd is a man a cis man like that's what a geek is thus that's what a fanfiction writer is and fuck you because fanfic writers primarily are assigned female at birth and it's an unusual media industry or art form or whatever you want to call it for being that and so when people try to take away from
3: that they are misogynist pieces of garbage like fuck you they misread the room yeah badly (laughs) they totally misread the room
1: (laughs) yeah they didn't know anything about the community that they're like trying to flush all this money out of precisely
3: well that's just the kind of way a lot of these you know media companies are. You take a look at some of these ads that show up on, even fanfiction.net's got ads now, and they're advertising fucking Rogaine. It's hilarious. It's like, yeah, little blue pills, dudes, you have totally misread the room here. Guys writing fanfic, I mean, yes, they've always been the minority, but it used to be more of a common thing, because I remember even on X-Files fandom, there was a couple of dudes there. I think Dawson Rambo was one of them. He was a dude and he wrote some of the best Baldur Scully shit. Hot, too. Well, also, here's the other thing. Here's the other thing. So, I am primarily known for, like, explicit
2: M.M., both for, like, writing it, for talking about it, for, like, fandom history about it, and a lot of fandom history stuff, like, on Tumblr is about that part of fandom history. But we need to be aware that even in the modern day, like, I think there's still some, like, straight dudes writing, like, Castle Beckett thick for the TV show Castle. Like, when you get one of those fandoms that has a lot of like, like the big cannon het ship or my little pony that has like a lot of fem slash and a little bit of het, some of those fandoms that is where you find those dudes more often. Like, yeah, there's a few cis gay dudes who hang out on AO3. Like, absolutely. I'm not saying there are none. There totally are some, but there are parts of fandom that are less ultra female centric, but they are like not the AO3 part. So, you know, it also depends on kind of your lens. So like, FanLib didn't look terrible to everybody. It looked terrible to me and to the people I was hanging out with. But the r- the real reason it sucked was not because it was sexist and whatever. Like I was angry because of that reason. But the real reason it sucked was because it was a venture capital thing. I don't know what they intended originally. But what happened is kind of what normally happens, which is they ran it for like a year. It was popular with the people who were on it. It was doing fine as a social space. And then the venture capital startupy dudes Managed to sell it for a lot of money to Disney, who then shut it down like five seconds later. And I think that a lot of startups, that is how they operate. You start a startup with like bullshit venture capital to just see what you can do. You build some cool stuff. Whatever sticks, you then sell to somebody bigger for like a big buyout, and you then go on to your next tech job. And that's fine. That's how tech works. But it's bad for social places online because they then immediately get either ruined or deleted after the buyout.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that is the pattern in tech. You're just flipping technology, like you're flipping houses.
0: For some reason, in my brain, I always thought that fan lib lasted a little bit longer than that, but it was only really that one year, right? Yes. Oh, Jesus. Wow. But it seems like in that one year, it managed to infuriate enough people.
2: No, no. No, let's be clear. It infuriated people with its intrusive ad campaign and solicitation of like new users a month or two before it opened. <laughs> That's what inspired AO3.
0: Oh, wow. So you're saying that even before the site launched?
2: Like, what, what infuriated everyone is that to launch it, they were trying to explain to people that it would exist and what it was. And those explanations were fucking bullshit. That's where the 90 pound weekly ad, it was an ad. That's where that came from. Or like, They were, they were trying to seed the platform by contacting influencer types. But what I'm saying is they were contacting the prettiest girl in the room and telling her to come and not, you know, the uggos.
0: Kind of going after the big name fans there, trying to get them to come over.
2: I'm not saying you don't go for the popular writer you do, but like the way you get fandom to move is you take like a pod of people who are all friends and you get the most socially influential early adopter who may not be a writer to get like they're like the beta or something you know you get like the beta who always checks out the new website to check it out and then they tell the big name fan let's go be on this website and then like their herd of friends all go there but it's not the same thing as you're a famous writer content like they were acting like if you want to do alternate youtube and you approach the right youtubers to do alternate youtube like that's sort of how they were soliciting people it's the same as the web novel people now where you see on reddit or whatever people are like not this weird ad for like web novel but like I'm fine on fanfiction.net. Why are they sending me weird ads? Is this like a scam? What's going on? Like, it, it felt like that to people.
0: Yeah, and you see a lot of that discourse on Reddit now with the web novel folks. It's weird and creepy, in my opinion. It sounds like Astellet's post was a reaction to the launching and the creation of Fanlib but not necessarily its demise.
2: Oh, yeah. No, it was all it was all about them intrusively like PMing people being like, we're starting a new thing. You'll love it. And we're all like, fuck you. We don't love it. And also, why wasn't I invited? I'm important. Fuck you.
0: (laughs) Oh, no, I can see that. I can absolutely see that as a factor as well. Now, I've always been curious. I was not on Life Journal in 2007, so I wasn't there when Astellet made the post proposing the archive but I've always been so super curious about what the opinions were of the different fandom communities when that was proposed.
3: Do you remember Elronix? I mean, I I can talk about that. Well, I remember bits and pieces. I was a late adopter to AO3. uh, I'll have to admit, I remember seeing it. I also remember that a lot of people talked big because I had seen some of those ads for like the, you know, the 90 pound weekly ads. And I knew that I smelled scam on that one. I smelled some kind of, you know, Nigerian Prince, you know, we're going to steal your credit card scam going on, which is why I didn't go there. So I thought at first AO3 was going to be just another, either A, an idea that it wasn't going to get off the ground, people just talking stuff and, and and not doing anything, or B, it was some kind of scam that was going to get bought out by Disney or MGM or the Russians in like three months, and it wouldn't have been worth it to transfer over. So I was skeptical about trying to go over there. I didn't get over to AO3 until, what, 2017? Because I just didn't think that it was gonna last. Oh
2: yeah, yeah, a lot, and a lot of people felt that way. That was a very common opinion from the very beginning. Uh, I will say, so AO3 Obviously, I think it's great. I helped build it. I think it's wonderful. But the reason Ao3 got popular, in my opinion, is not because it is good or anything like that. The reason it got popular is that it was being an active website that was fully open by 2012. When Fanfiction.net did a stupid and pissed everyone off and scared everyone, and unlike when Strike Through happened, where like there was nowhere to go from LiveJournal immediately. I mean, Tumblr, yes, but you know there wasn't sort of like an obvious instantly jump ship here's the one place we're all going that existed or like with tumblr like pillow fort for example wasn't really fully available and open for business and able to take traffic but when fanfiction.net fucked up in 2012 because ao3 was fully open for business and was more or less able to handle the traffic a huge amount of energy was like oh there is one place we're all going as we're leaving and so then like a bunch of people came and that's what actually made ao3 popular like, I think it's a good site, but being good isn't what made it popular. What what made it popular was something else messed up and chased a ton of people in the same direction at the same time, which is usually what makes sites popular. So, but anyway, so.
3: Yeah, yeah. The other thing I I do appreciate about Archive of Our Own is that the, uh, the formatting system is so much better than fanfiction.net, because fanfiction.net has not updated anything since like the mid-2000s. You upload a DocX into fanfiction.net and you have to go through the whole thing and edit it because it will garble it seven ways to Sunday.
2: It's a fucking document uploader. Like, are we still in the 90s? Like, AO3 you can kind of tell came from, like, LiveJournal fans because it has a similar level of like, the slightly dodgy rich text editor or the like light HTML better editor that looks like LiveJournal, you know. But there's none of this, you upload a document like, you, you you can like paste it into the form and it's fine. Okay, so you were asking about, like, what were people's thoughts or reservations or whatever. Early on, out of people who were, like, a little bit closer, like, friends of friends have asked a lot. Maybe they actually commented on the post. They were kind of, like, socially active writing meta in that same space. Not everybody was into it. There were definitely objections. But they were a little bit different from the objections now. So you saw a ton of, like, what Alronix said where people were like, look, this sounds cool. But this is a big project. And, like, I'm kind of tired of wasting my energy Uh, chasing after shit that dies in five minutes so like yeah like call call me when it's 10 years old was sort of one comment a lot of people were sort of making I saw a ton of people being like well it sounds cool but I can only help you if it doesn't have RPF or I can only help you if it doesn't have underage and PS more of them said RPF than underage by the way so like I left a comment and I was like well I would only find it useful as a writer if it's like maximally inclusive but you know I'm not going to, like, I'll volunteer to help you regardless, because I'm not going to try to blackmail you with my volunteering, that that kind of comment, because, you know, I've always been a total wanker, anyway, because I remember reading these comments and just being like, bitch, please, you know, because it was very, like, oh, I could help you, but only if it has the content guidelines I want, and, like, I get it, I get it, but, like, the reality is that AO3 can't have the content guidelines one personally wants unless one is just very like err free speech because like it's a sort of everybody archive so it's gonna have some slightly like crappy rules or whatever it's just it's how it's gonna be like it can't be specific because it's intentionally not specific
3: rpf is kind of a, a weird one for me i mean i know my sister writes it you know she's written bandfic, but i it's like eh, that it, fictional characters do not have lawyers or pissed off relatives Ironically, we're not Britain, so like our like
2: defamation lawsuit stuff is like, well, did you like legitimately super duper claim this false claim is true in like a super legit place, or did you say like, well, it's a fake story where they're gay? Uh, Like, like in the UK and some places, there's a lot more like control over like public image stuff. In Korea, you can totally like sue the shit out of people, even for things that are true if they're like damaging your like you know status or whatever. But like here in the US, we're like, well, I mean, they didn't say it was actually true that Cherry falwell like lost his virginity to his mom in an outhouse they just said it was a story so it's totally fine <laughs> the reason that ao3 is safe is because of gross lawsuits from shit like hustler like like, like i hate to say it or people don't like it but like it's true like we are a country that has chosen to prioritize letting nazis march and letting super gross offensive porn that's intentionally upsetting people like be a thing
3: well, yeah, but that means that they threw Harvey Milk in the same bin as Larry Flint, so... That's correct. I, all I'm saying, I'm not saying this is like necessarily just
2: good or just bad. I'm just saying you have to understand that AO3 is a very... American website in that sense, and that we are actually a country yeah. with better laws in that sense. Because people are like, well, why is it hosted in the US? It should be hosted in, you know, some European country they think is liberal. And I'm like, okay, but our laws are like, fuck you, I can do what I want. Like those are our laws. Their laws are like, no, no, but like taste sometimes. And we're like, no, no, no taste, no taste. Just free speech. <laughs> That's why it's hosted in the US. Um and in this case, it does things we like. In the case of Nazis marching, like I understand why we maybe have to allow that for other things to be around, but I don't like it. Free speech, yada, yada, it's an American value, it has certain implications, other people may have different values. But anyway, so early objections, a lot of them were like, RPF, or things like that, or I don't think you can do it, very legit objection. Um, Some objections were like, okay, so fanfiction.net used to have all these forums that they then fucking deleted all of, like, over Thanksgiving night or something, so like, nobody knew they were doing it. The forums still exist, but like, all the old content is gone. So sadly, you cannot rubberneck the wank. So there used to be a lot of objections, not so much right in 2007, but, like, more like 2010, like, as it was getting started and were finding out about it, a lot of people would post things like, so, like, fanfiction, they don't say fanfiction, fanfiction is, like, the original one. I don't know why, like, another website is trying to, like, steal from them and, like, steal their idea, which, as I'm sure Alronix remembers, Gossamer's older. Like, there are certain single fandom archives that are older than fanfiction.net. Like, yeah, it's the first big multi-fandom archive that took, like, most fandoms and where you could upload things yourself. But it's not the first multi-fandom archive, I don't think. And it's certainly not the first, like, large archive of, like, just any old fandom. Oh,
3: yeah. The appeal on fanfiction.net for me when it started out is that, oh, cool, since I write in about, oh, three or four different fandoms at that point, I could put them all in one spot and not have to disseminate between six different websites and and five different mod teams. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. And in that era, you don't, Like, you don't wait a long-ass time. Like, a lot of these little websites, like, you would send your little email text story to some mod, and they would, like, hand-do the HTML, and, like, you know, it would, like, take forever for it to go up, or they would, like, vet it for content or, like, good writing or, you know, whatever. Instead of just, like, you upload it and then it's up. Yeah. Um, Let's see. Okay, so, sorry. Sorry. I'm always getting off topic. Other objections people had... There were a lot of objections back then, and they persisted until, I would say, past 2012. But sort of like, when AO3 got really big, they started to go away because it was so large it didn't matter. But many of the objections early on were like, okay, you guys are big name fans. You think you know fandom history. You think you know what you're doing. But, like, 100% of you are like John Rodney shippers from SGA. Like, none of you know anything else. And so there was a fan, uh, Laura Hale. Not like on teen wolf, a different person named Laura Hale who was kind of an early I want to have a patreon for fanfic type before patreon existed, but she was kind of a, like monetizing wanna wanna be influencer type, and she really had it in for uh, o t w partly because it was like a very legit looking very anti profit very public thing, and she like wanted to profit and you know that was hurting her in that way, uh but also she ran this really garbage wiki called the fan History wiki.
0: I've heard of that, yeah,
2: Fucking bullshit anyway, um. That wiki, I hadn't even heard of it, but in her mind it was very famous. And the problem is that when OTW started, it like we knew it would take a while. The first thing was we're gonna build an archive. And then the second thing was, oh, well, that's taking a while, so we're gonna start an academic journal and build a wiki and do these five other things at the same time. So then everybody got very mad because they're like, No, I want my fanfic archive, like why are you doing these other things? And of course the answer is that different people were doing the other things and they were faster, so like whatever. But The problem is, starting fan lore, Laura was like, well, okay, but like, okay, but I already have this fan history wiki, and you're like reinventing the wheel instead of going to the fans that are building the thing, and that's like, you're just kind of jerks. Like, why are you making some new bullshit instead of like cooperating and collaborating and joining existing fan projects? And in her case, she was a lying jerk face. But in everybody else's case, they had a point, sort of. Like, I think Dot Moon made this objection. But not in a douchey way. Like, I like Dot Moon. Mo was sort of like, oh, it's kind of sad. Like, I've been working on this archive. It has a good community. And, like, I don't get any, any support. No one donates money to me. Like, I mean, like, a little bit, but, you know. And, and there really was this feeling of, like, okay, look, there's a lot of cool fandom projects out there. And, like, it's kind of – it kind of hurts to see someone who, like, talks a good game, but you kind of think some of it's hot air. Who every fan poodle in the universe instantly joins and gives money to. And then here's somebody else who's been languishing for ten years building a cool product. And, like, no one gives a fuck. I don't think that's Astolat's fault, but that was a feeling a lot of people had. And it was exacerbated by the fact that that whole crowd, other than like me, kind of knew nothing about anime fandom, which is a big part of fandom, and was not very into fan art. Vitting, yes, but not like drawing and painting, which is another big part of fandom. And also, like Laura Hale's buddies, who later kind of ditched her when she turned out to be a psycho, they were in Rockfic. And Rockfic... I kid you not. This is so stupid. I can't even say. Okay, so Rockfick had a long-standing beef with fandom because fandom meaning like fueled by ramen bands and whatever like Panic at the Disco or like all of them had like been like no Bandom just means our thing, not fandom of bands. And so these other music fandoms of bands like Rockfick, which was like the Bon Jovi and Metallica slashers and stuff, who had like their own archive where you have to like pay a buck or something. And you have to be like over eighteen who were like very old school and very locked down and like a different part of RPF. were like, you guys are new to RPF and you're like disrespecting these older existing music RPF fandoms by like acting like fandom is your word. And I think Fanlore has an article. on this. I was not involved in any of this. So anyway, point is they had like prior fandom beef and Laura Hale used it to manipulate them into being like sort of her emissaries who were like legit normal people. So they sounded better. Whereas Laura Hale herself was a fucking loon trying to make money. Yeah. So there was, there was like a lot of sort of, in fighting that, some—I mean—I'm making fun of this part, but there were big parts of it where they weren't totally wrong. Where OTW to make it happen at all, people kind of got steamrolled, and I—I I don't apologize for that. But the reality is that there were concerns that weren't really listened to or were not even brought up because the initial group was not diverse in any sense. And I, I don't just mean like, oh, they—they were all white or whatever. I mean, I don't know that we all were all white, but there were a lot of white people. But I don't mean that. I mean like they weren't diverse in terms of what fandoms they liked. They were all in the same part of fandom, and so. Things like, is original work allowed on the archive? I've talked about this a lot, but I was very angry that it wasn't allowed. And I was like, we have to allow an original work category for us to be inclusive to fanfic writers. And they were just like, I don't get it. That's not true. Why? If you ask somebody from the big German archives, they would know why. If you ask somebody from like early BL, like gay stuff for anime fandom in English on a lot of mailing lists, they would know why. But if you ask John Rodney Shippers from SGA fandom, they don't know why. There were a lot of cultural objections, basically, basically being like you guys aren't broad enough culturally to build an inclusive archive.
0: Yeah, and that makes sense. And that sounds like I think a little bit what I expect, because it is such a huge project and you're bringing all of these people together with different backgrounds. And it's this huge, expansive thing and it's hard to please everybody. Right. I had a feeling there was probably infighting and a lot of people with different opinions and different things like that.
2: what I I want to emphasize is, of course there was infighting, and of course there were a lot of opinions, but what I want to emphasize is that, not now, but originally, the people in power, there wasn't that kind of infighting, because they they were not not aware, because they were very, very knowledgeable about fandom in one narrow slice, period. And there were other fans who were kind of like on the periphery being like, hey, but, 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 or, oh, I'm not going to join that because I already know they're going to be dumbasses. And those other fans like, had those opinions, and I saw those opinions, but they weren't really very visible in the sort of core OTW space early on. And again, I'm talking, like, 2007 here. I'm not talking, like, recently. But um, there really was a feeling from some fans of, like, well, every time there's a fandom history thing or project, it's always, like, people that only, like, again, I emphasize, like, like, slash of, like, two white dudes from, like, a cop show in the U.S., you know, or whatever, and not, like, I'm into anime or I'm into this other thing. And there was kind of some bad feeling about that, but none of those people had enough power to make that bad feeling like meaningful, basically.
0: Now, for you personally, because I know that you were one of the ones that jumped on early to assist with the creation of Veo3, why did you personally think that this was a good idea that you felt good giving your time and energy to?
2: Uh, A few reasons. I was young and stupid and underemployed. That was part of it. Part of it was that I like knew who Shalot was and thought she was cool and had followed her around for, I'm sorry, I always call her Shalot because I saw her on mailing lists first and she used to be that before on LiveJournal, somebody name squatted it and she couldn't get it. (laughs) So, you know, like I knew her of old and was like, ah, anything she does, I will join. So I was a big Yuletide fan. I've done Yuletide every year. Most people have not. It's been going a long time. So i had done Yuletide every year and I was like, well, she did Yuletide. It's nothing compared to AO3, but it was a big project at the time. And I was like, well, I think, I think that proves she can do it. And I want to get on the ground floor. And like, I want to like, essentially, if everybody's like, let's wait and see if everybody waited and saw, there would be nothing to see. But again, she had sort of proof of concept by doing another big project. So I was excited. But also, I specifically wanted a product they didn't even have till way later. But that was the exchange interface It was not in part of the very first release. But the exchange interface where you can run your own Yuletide without being a very technical. That's what I wanted. Because I wanted to run, like, Yuletide, but for anime. Because Yuletide has always been kind of crappy at Asian fandoms also. Like, they're in it, but people are, like, kind of confused about them and things get messed up. And so I was like, I'm going to run, like, anime Yuletide, like, in the summer. I'm going to join this project. And, of course, ironically, by the time they coded the interface to do that, I was, like, into Miami Vice. A old school zine fandom for, like, not white guys, but, like, you know, dude cops also i was into by the time we actually had the exchange interface. but i did run it it was called parallels i ran it for a few years and then after a while i stopped it because people sent me too much hate mail and then after it didn't happen one year they were like what's going on can i have it instead and i was like sure so i like turned it over to them but i i, I really wanted that exchange interface to to work so that like any rando who can't code could like have their own little yuletide whenever they want and that is a thing that happened like we now have this whole world of like there were exchanges in the past but you tended to see fuck Q fests you know F U H Q fuck fests that would be like like a challenge would there be like a theme or something i think but it wouldn't be like a secret santa and there were some secret santas but not like a ton and now you look at like quote-unquote exchange fandom some people call it and it's kind of its own little world of fandom where there's people who just like do like multi-fandom exchanges all the time all year long because of a03
1: yeah, it's so cool. You see, yeah, you see them in every fandom everywhere. It seems like, I haven't run one or anything like that, so I don't know the software, but it seems like it's accessible enough for pretty much anyone.
2: Yeah, it's pretty easy. I mean, there's there's a few glitches as the site gets bigger and more people are in these things. There's like a couple of little kind of slightly glitchy bits where sometimes it doesn't, like the the sort of auto-matching I think it's maybe better now, but it has some issues in the middle there. But but yeah, like, it's not very technical. You don't have to code or anything. You just like go into the interface and set up some parameters, which is you know pretty
0: cool. Now, with your involvement in the beginning stages of the creation of AO3, can you just tell us really quick what that process looked like in the beginning? What were you involved in? What were the challenges? And then maybe some things that you're most proud of that came out of AO3.
2: Gosh, all right. Well, the early days, I do kind of remember. I, a lot of my a lot of my service in uh, OTW is sort of a fugue of anxiety and like memory loss from too much stress. It was, um, let's just say they eventually fixed their internal culture to some degree. And that was good. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you, if you look back, you'll see a lot of old wank about like, so horrific levels of burnout. Not not great, guys. Not great. That I mean, it was very standard, like nonprofit horrible problems. Okay, so, so let's see So early on Very early on Like right after the The initial post uh, A bunch of people volunteered And then Astolot was like I need applications For the first board And a bunch of us Submitted applications I did submit one I mean, mine was like oh, I'm not really very qualified But if you can't find anybody else I'll do it You know, like not like a real application Like a lot of them were like that Which is partly because Fandom is full of people Who are very, you know Self-effacing But also because Genuinely, I was not very qualified um, <laughs> I was was like in my 20s and whatever um so she put together a first board and I think she announced who it was going to be I don't totally remember and the thing is like due to that they then had a bunch of private meetings for I don't know like like sort of from like sometime in 2007 to like sometime in 2008 I think they had like a lot of meetings where they were deciding things and they were figuring out that they wanted to be a nonprofit and talking to Heidi Tandy who'd helped uh Fiction Alley the Harry Potter archive like be a nonprofit. you know all this kind of thing but to the outside even to like a volunteer like me It kind of looked like not much was going on. Like we were all kind of very interested. We all really wanted updates, but kind of, we didn't really hear a lot. And then after a while, they started making committees and they started tapping people who like volunteered earlier, in board applications or whatever, being like, hey, do you want to be on this committee? Do you want to be on that committee? And I I think the first thing they started doing was like coding, but I wasn't very involved in that. So I didn't really know what was going on with that. And they were like, hey, we're going to do like a terms of service committee. And, you know, I didn't really have that many technical skills. Well, I should say, I don't have that many technical skills compared to tech people But compared to fans and fandom now, I'm like, well, I can sort of do Python, you know, so it's like, like tech skills are very relative. Like I'm very untechnical for like 90s internet. But so because I wasn't like a tech person, they asked me if I wanted to be on the content policy committee. And I, God, there were what, five to eight of us. I don't remember exactly how many. And so we, um, you know, we kind of hashed things out. I think one of the first things I did was I went and did like a survey of all these extant other archives. And like like, how do they work? What are their policies? What do they ban? Uh, How do they enforce things? And I had a whole long list. I mean, there were dozens and dozens of archives at the time, and probably even still. And then we talked about things, and we sort of started working some stuff up. And then we did some, like, workshopping with, like, focus groups that, like, came in and, like, looked at what we've written. Uh, People think that we didn't do that. No, we did totally do that. And they weren't all just, you know, they weren't all just John Rodney Shippers. There was a variety of people in that group. But, you know, we spent a lot of time, like, debating certain wording and, bringing up certain things. A lot of it again, they all have a lot of fandom knowledge and have been around a long time, but I think my memory is that I was the one who had like spent the most time fighting on the internet over bullshit. <laughs> which is not surprising. <laughs> so I brought up, for example, Critics United and the Literate Union. I really didn't want those to be possible on AO three. And what I mean by that is those are groups fanfiction.net has had these sort of activist, I guess, or like organized groups. And they say that they're about writing critique or making writing better or making the site better. And The part of the groups that does that, that's fine. But what they do is they go through looking for fic that breaks the rules to report it. And the fic, you know, a lot of them are like straight guys. And yes, there's a lot of fic that breaks the rules on fanfiction.net. But wouldn't you know it, the fic they tend to report is gay stuff or like... Things like Twilight, like explicit Twilight Het, where they're like, oh, it's a shitty girl fandom that like stupid girls like, you know, like and that is what made AO3 popular and made fanfiction.net start to get less popular is when they mass reported all the Twilight porn and Twilight is a very integrated fan like they're very connected. And very active, and often very monofanish, and very you know when they moved, they all moved. Um, and so, a yeah. three had been very you know gay stuff. But like when when Twilight got evicted, all the ones that didn't go to the like fundamentalist Christian archives, people founded were like, oh, this one allows all the porn. Like fuck you, we're going where the porn is allowed. Um, so anyway, the point the point is the reason Critics United and Literate <laughs> Union are able to do what they do is because most fanfiction.net users think the rules are X and the real rules are Y. And they, It's not just that they think the rules should be X, it's that they think the rules are X. You'll see it on Reddit all the time. Oh my God, fanfiction.net banned porn? When? And we're like, 2002, bro? Yes, I was there when they banned porn and they mean 2012. And it's like, no, that's when they deleted a bunch of porn. They didn't ban it then. So the point is, when you have rules that go against conventional wisdom, your users are going to not know, they're going to post the wrong things And you then have a situation where large communities exist if they can remain obscure. And that produces possibility for abuse. And what I mean is like, it's the same way that like, oh, you can't be gay and a spy. Not because gay spies suck, but because if you're gay and no one knows, you have a thing you can be blackmailed about. It's like that kind of issue where like, I don't like it when a site is set up in a way where like like the porn writers aren't going to not be there. They're just going to be easily blackmailed or scared or harassed or whatever. And so I was very insistent. that The rules needed to be both very, very inclusive of content, but also very like, hey, if you try to use the abuse, like there's a bunch of language in there about like if you mass report the same thing, we can optionally ignore all the extra reports of like the same thick to like, you know, procedurally like not have to deal with that. I have not been involved officially since 2014. So like things have changed since my days. But the terms of service are quite similar to how they used to be. And I think abuse procedures are like roughly similar. And basically like I wanted to be like, okay, like the rules sort of allow everything, so there's no- there's almost nothing you can grudge report other than Patreon and Coffee, Ko-Fi, links. Please don't post those guys. You can't post links to your money making thing on AO3. But other than that, there's nothing you can really like grudge report. So you can't like target a fandom and only report in that fandom because there's nothing to report, basically, except for like legitimate violations. Like you didn't use the rape tag or the choose not to warn tag on like blatant rape fake or whatever. But, um, you know, that that's a more legit one. Also, when you report that, the only thing that happens is that they slap the choose not to warn on it or you change the tag yourself, as opposed to Fanfiction.net, where mass reporting things gets them deleted. So I was very insistent that we needed to sort of avoid a situation where, like, the de facto rules and the real rules don't match, and thus you can, like, blackmail people. (laughs) I don't like that behavior. And I saw a lot of people object early on to AO3 because they were like, look, fanfiction, that was fine. Like, you can post stuff. It's just sort of, you know, whatever. You're kind of... And I was like, okay, look, we don't want a website where we're there on sufferance. And that's what makes AO3 different, is that specifically for the MM in particular, you can kind of tell that that's kind of what it's all about, and that's kind of who built it. And I'm not saying that that's never alienating. There are definitely fans that find that alienating. That's fine. You know, but all the previous websites have this vibe like, well, you can post gay stuff here as long as you admit that you're kind of the the weirdo plus one and not like who the site is for. And that's not how AO3 is. And I think that there were a lot of people that were sort of like, well, the status quo was fine. Like you were allowed to be there. You just, you know, you had to admit you're like the creepy weird cousin we still invite to Thanksgiving. It's like, okay, but like we want a site for us. Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: amazing. I think that's just amazing. Like every time I hear stories about people that were involved on the ground level of AO3 coming up, it it just it floors me how much work went into it, how much thought went into it. It was a very thoughtful process, it seems like. So it's just really cool to hear the details of kind of the behind the scenes. Would you guys be okay if we moved on to question fifteen? which is just moving away from AO3 and just more of random fandom stuff that you remember, like happy stuff, favorite fandom memories, things like that. Alronix, when I was reading your response to the number 15 question, I really liked some of the stories you threw in there. So I want to make sure that we cover those (laughs) because they sounded really, really cool. So
3: Yeah, it's like there's this perception, especially that I run into on Tumblr, that Phantom was some, you know, treehouse of neck-bearded white boys, straight white boys. And I'm blaming the Big Bang Theory because this one became a medic mutation because that was never the way Phantom spaces really were. You know, we'll let our brothers be up in front being our, our faces while the rest of, you know, us women and everybody else is in the background doing all the stuff that would piss off the studios. So, Women did the fanfic, the fan art, the bootleg tapes, the other stuff that wasn't sanctioned. So we were doing all the kind of stuff that would get us in trouble while our brothers were out in front buying the official merchandise and doing the acceptable kind of the the stuff that wouldn't get in in trouble with studio lawyers. The other thing is that, you know, some really good fandom memories was, again, Galaxy Rangers is a really small but really fun fandom to work with. Uh... One of them was, I started a correspondence with one of the show's writers decided to show up on the fan list. He was actually one of the, like, the, the head writer, you know, kind of second only to the show's creator, and he decided to show up on this list, and uh, he was kind of um floored by what he found there. You know, he was participating and reading stuff, and we didn't realize he was reading the fanfic, and I invited him to a... We were doing a fan-run science fiction convention at our college, and I invited him to be the guest of honor. and didn't think he'd take us up on it, but he did. So, you know, Mr. Rowley decided to show up to this place, and, you know, he described it on his blog later as partying in a concrete bunker for three days with college students. So he was doing all this, and we had a, a Galaxy Rangers marathon in his honor. Uh, He was, again, really floored that anybody remembered this thing because it was so obscure. But we had people flying out here from St. Louis. We had another guy called flying in from Hawaii. Probably about a dozen people showed up to this uh, obscure little college out in Washington State for this. And we rented out this rotunda and we're showing them episodes. And he's sitting there as big guest of honor. At the uh, the dinner we were having with him, his wife, he goes to the bathroom and his wife was talking about how he was reading the fan fiction and was just astonished by, one, he thought the quality was really surprisingly good for a bunch of amateurs. And the other thing was he was spooked by how far we took things. She's over in the living room and she hears from his den, oh my God, honey, oh my God, you got to come and see this. Oh my God, they have these two characters having sex? And everybody at the table went, did the facepalm because in that fandom, we were all in each other's pockets and we knew the exact fic he was talking about and which scene it was because out of the 12 people that were there, I think about six of us were in that chat room when that scene was being compiled. You know, it was out there on the list. We just didn't think he would bother to read it. And it was kind of between mortifying and flattering that he would actually read the stuff that we were making. The other thing is that he later made this joke about some of the stuff that they were joking about in the writer's room that wouldn't pass standards in practice. Remember, this was an an animated kids' show from the 80s. It was a contemporary of, like, Thundercats and He-Man. He commented that the writers had some unsavory speculations about the villainess's sex life. Well, you can imagine what happened after that because there was a bunch of people who took that as a fan fiction challenge and we proceeded to break a lot of people's brains. It eventually wound up as the the show's creator had to wound up de lurking cuz he he had somehow gotten on the list and nobody had realized it and going, "Um, we're a little squicked. Thank you." The the show's creator also made comments on my site going, "I again, I can't believe you did this." And when the show finally came out on DVD over in 2008, he had made this, you know, press release and had listed the names of the characters. Well, one of the characters didn't have a last name in canon, but it had a last name in Fanon that I had actually made, and he used the Fanon last name. Yes, he did. And we're going, ah, uh, Sir Robert, um, that was something we pulled out of our ass late night. That was something Alronix made up. Sorry. <laughs> oh, well, I'll use it anyway. I'm the show's creator. I can do what I want. There was also when I found out that one of the fanfics that I had written, this was like when I was starting out in 1993-94, I found out that somebody had given one of my fanfics, and this was a mortify, a, a oh crap moment, but I found out that somebody had given... One of my fanfics as a gift to one of the DS9 cast members. It was Alex Sadig and Nana Visitor because they were married at the time. And I was like embarrassed because, oh my goodness, I did not expect that. At least it was Genfic. Please don't give other people's fic to the powers that be. Please don't. Please don't. (laughs) That that was just, ooh, bad form. Yeah, I was 16 years old and just about craft myself. Wow. (laughs)
2: <laughs> I mean I mean don't don't give
3: your own fic to them either, but like really don't give other people's fic to them. <laughs> Please don't give other people's fic. The the other weird part was Uh one of the the types of fanfic that I do is game modification. And so I, I do Knights of the Old Republic and one of the things that I did was add like twenty pages worth of dialogue to the game. You know, subtitle only, no no voices, of course, but it's just fanfic shit posting. I find out that it was circulated to the point where I can go on to a Let's Play of KOTOR and there's like a 50-50 shot of recognizing that they installed my mod on there.
0: So that's cool. That must be so cool, though, to see your mod pop up on a YouTube video. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so awesome. I love that. Actually, this is the first time that i have ever hearing about game modification with fan fiction purposes. That's so interesting to me. I had no idea that that even existed.
2: Yeah, yes, people have been sending me asks about this like a couple of times, and like I, I really wasn't familiar with it until relatively recently. And I was sort of like, oh, well, game mods—that's cool, but I don't see why it's fanfic because I was thinking game mods like where you redress all the characters in like bikinis or whatever. Because I mean, those are also game mods. And then somebody was like, no, 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 like like the story kind like you're talking about. And I was like, oh wow, you're right. That that is fanfic, and it is it is a fanfic place that has at least more men than say Ao3. And I think that's so interesting, like you're totally right that there's like all of these little bits of fan things that are very similar and rel- like related. And if you're just like reading on AO3, it doesn't matter if you know about them, but like for somebody like me writing some meta or you know other people writing meta or whatever, it's like, if you don't know about these things and you're trying to generalize about like how fan fiction works, you're going to make some bad generalizations because you haven't like seen the full breadth of what fans are doing.
3: Oh yeah. Or, you know, Tron 2.0 is, uh it's, let think of it as Legends canon for uh, Tron instead. You know, did the same thing with Tron that they did with Star Wars, which was there was an expanded universe and another sequel, but they kind of nuked and paved it when Legacy came out. So Tron 2.0 was that the keystone of their Legends canon. There's some people who do Machinima. They take the character models and the the in-game animations and they... I've seen people doing stories and fan art with that. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's very much like a, it's a whole new world on fan fiction there, I think.
2: For sure. And like role playing of all kinds is still going strong. Dream with is full of like LJ type role playing. And I mean, I mean, you know, we all kind of know that's adjacent, but like, like my girlfriend's very into RP and I never had any idea what's going on in LJ RP. But there's definitely like a lot of different fandom things. I, I think it's interesting. Like, I hope that fans that listen to this, particularly if they're interested in like history or like, why do we do what we do? Like those kind of questions. I hope that they will like go and explore all the things that we do because there are like a lot more than people sometimes realize. Um, let's see, you are asking about like sort of fun fandom experience. Yeah,
0: favorite fandom memories. It could be anything crazy that comes to mind.
2: Okay, so I have a couple of related memories. So sometimes people will ask me like, do you know fandom people in real life? And all these kind of questions. And the answer, aside from the fact that yes, 100% of my close friends are fandom people. Um, I have this thing where like, I can't go anywhere without meeting fandom people. And I don't just mean, like, geeks who like sci-fi. I mean, like, fan fiction nerds. Usually ones that are, like, girls who like M.M., but not always. But so, like, okay, I was in grad school, and my Argentinian classmate was getting married back home. And uh, the rest of our classmates were like, dude, it's a long way. I don't have any money. And I was like, all right, I'll go. I want to go. So I go. And because she was having it, like, over the holidays, I I planned it really badly. It was terrible. Like, whatever. I, like, travel was a nightmare. And I ended up going to her family New Year's party because I was there for that. And I didn't realize it was, like, a sit-down dinner party because, you know, I'm not Argentinian. I've never had a party like that for New Year's. Anyway, I showed up late. I ended up in, like, a weird seat because I was late. Um, And I'm sitting next to her random friend that's, like, not a relative who happens to be there. And so we're sort of chatting. And she's like, what are you doing in town? Or sort of, what are you doing besides this? And I was like, well, I'm going back to Buenos Aires tomorrow. And she's like, but it's, like, the middle of the hot season and horrible. We were just saying you hate hot weather. Why are you going? And I'm like, well... I want to meet up with this buddy of mine. Like, I've never been to Argentina before, and I have this online person that I know from, like, like a nonprofit thing that I do, like a volunteering thing I do, and I want to meet her in person. And she's like, Oh, volunteering? Like, oh, that, that sounds so, so good, like, good for you, you're a good person, kind of shit. And I was like, Oh, well, okay. I mean, sort of, but like, on, it's like volunteering for like a fanfic thing. And she was like, What do you mean, like a fanfic thing? And I'm like, Well, it's like, a, like an archive. And she's like, Well, what archive? And I'm like, Well, like, ao And she's like, What? Like, No. And I'm like, Yeah, AO3. And she's like, Oh. And like, My classmate is not into fandom, but she managed to find like her one friend who's a secret fanfic nerd and like seat her next to me at dinner by accident. Like, okay, friend. Like, how did that? So weird. That's cool. Similarly, I go to Japan. I'm teaching in Japan. There's some random girl. She's talking about Remus and Sirius. And I'm like, oh, well, she's clearly a slasher. So I send them a Slash and she like does like a triple take. And I'm just like, we're nerds teaching English in Japan. Like, of course, you know, but my third memory like this, this is the best one. So back in the day, I was very into these movies, the Omyoji movies, uh, which are based on the uh, books by Yume Makarabaku. It's like a 80s, 90s, and I mean, continuing till today, Japanese fantasy series uh, about Abe no Seime, who's kind of like the equivalent of Merlin, a sort of uh, ancient, but actually sort of historical figure, um, who is an Omyoji, which is a sort of Taoist magic practitioner of a particular like Japanese variety, also called a yin yang master in English in crappy translations this book series spawned a big interest in Seimei and a bunch of spin-off media. And I was in the fandom for the two Japanese live action movies that are from like 2001 and three, something like that. Anyway, this is around 2006 uh, in New York. I'm in this online fandom. It's quite small. And I go to book off, which is a Japanese bookstore. And I'm like in the section where they have the used copies of Omyoji, like looking for a used copy for a friend. And some girl walks up and we start, I'm like, Oh, are you interested in Omioji?" We start talking about it. And she quotes me about the thing. And I was like, no way oh yeah and i was like uh hi i'm Franzi," and she's like oh my god her friend is there and her friend's just like what the fuck is going on and we were totally like we like we're like friends on live journal oh my god it's you and we like ended up talking for a long time making way too much noise in the bookstore
0: oh that's so cool and how random that you would be in some random bookstore and just randomly run into someone who knows you (laughs) i love that To be fair, there aren't a lot of used Japanese bookstores
2: in New York City, and I was standing in the section for the thing that we were both fans of, but
0: still. But still, yeah, that you would both be there at the exact same time. That just, that's amazing. I love that. I think what we're going to do here is we're going to combine these two last questions because they kind of flow into each other. I kind of wanted to see what both of your opinions are on the biggest challenges that fandom communities are facing today. And what are some things that we can do as individual members of our fandom communities to help improve these communities and then make the fandom experience better for everyone in the long run? So, Al Roddix, if you could go first here and just kind of give us your take on that.
3: Well, again, there probably needs to be maybe some better literacy on how to curate your own experience and be able to ship and let ship or to be able to criticize without being toxic. There are some points where. Yeah, criticism is legit. I mean, you really don't want to be drawing, like, Tiana from The Frog uh, Princess and the Frog. You really don't want to be drawing her pasty. And you really don't want to be drawing Rose Quartz skinny. But there needs to be a way of, if somebody does make a mistake, to be able to approach that in a more diplomatic manner instead of the, the torches and pitchforks approach that I see way too much on social media. There needs to be also a means of countering the narrative that fandom was nothing but a neck-bearded white boy space. That fandom has always been a place where maybe not as inclusive as anybody wanted it to be, but it wasn't a a guarded treehouse. The characters and the, the diversity we've looked for has been there, and it's getting better but it's it, it wasn't always, it just wasn't this isolated thing. And, and we just need to be a little bit less inclined to rage. Because there's a lot of rage right now, and it's just the wider society. Fandom needs to be one of those spaces where we don't take out our anger on each other. Where we, we have some ground rules and some civility uh, about ship and let ship and curating your own experience. If something bothers you, you block them, you hit the back button, you move on.
2: Yeah, I I would agree with that. I I would also say, like, I do agree with that. I think it's not as simple as that, though, because I think often the problem that I see a lot is what I like to call, uh, to use the political term, useful idiots. There are a lot of useful idiots in fandom right now. And what I'm talking about is a known bully and shit stirrer. And we don't all agree about who the known bullies and shit are. I'm sure somebody thinks I'm one of them. But there are people where, like, you know they're in there with an axe to grind. And they're scaring off your other people. And they're a jerk. And they come in all flavors. And I find that there are a lot of people who are giant fucking cowards who will not just say that that's what's going on. They're like, well, but this person said but social justice. So if I tell them to stop being a bully when they are blatantly being a bully, or I tell them that fact you said is a fact is literally not a fact, here's a citation – I am now a bigot because they said something about social justice. And so I can't disagree with them. And like, I'm not talking about sea lion and nitpicking every single person who says something about social justice. That is not helpful. But I do see a situation where people are so pathologically afraid to get it wrong ever that they're not willing to say moderate a space. What we need is smaller spaces and different spaces that are run with actual moderation and with an eye to human community, not with an eye to the shitty algorithm and big corporate greed. But part of that, it's two things. One, you have to put your foot down sometimes when a screaming child, who may be 45, but you know, a screaming child is like, I am right and you need to let me bully because of some buzzword that I said. You need to be like, hey, we actually do have a rule that you can't do that here and not wimp out. Like I've been in too many spaces that technically have a moderator, like on Discord, and the moderator breaks their own rules because somebody says something like, underage is not a kink. And you know, they're not even talking about eight-year-olds, talking about like a 14-year-old talking about a sexual fantasy or something oh that's not a kink and it's like okay your space said no kink shaming and anything goes and you're all talking about like necrophilia but someone talking about a 14 year old being horny now everyone clutches their pearls like i'm not saying you can't ban that i'm just saying that like when your pre-existing rules are a certain way and the mod wimps out because they're scared of the people there in the space which i've seen a lot that's not cool first of all second of all A lot of the reason that bullshit is allowed to fly is that people stay in clout-chasing spaces in the futile hope that they too can chase clout. And if you don't like having terrible mental health and being angry all the time, you need to start removing clout-chasing spaces from your life. I'm not saying you can't look at individual tweets or individual YouTube videos, but, like, you need to not be sitting on Twitter. Twitter is bad for you. You need to not be sitting in giant discords full of everyone you hate who are shit-stirring all the time. And you need to, like, like, if you want to boost and elevate voices, I think that's cool. But you need to understand that when you're doing this kind of very penny-ante online activism, not just in pan, I'm just sort of whatever, that activism matters much less than, like, voting for things and pestering your congressmen or whatever. But also, you need to understand that, like, when you elevate a voice, it becomes your voice. And I'm not saying that, like, I want to talk over everybody and have my white voice be the only voice. But when I reblog a friend of mine who's a person of color talking about race stuff, they are speaking for me. So if I'm not sure what they're talking about, I can't reblog that in good faith. I mean, I can and say, like, I don't understand this part, but like, I don't reblog things that are just angry and like yelling about problems in the world unless I understand enough of what the person's saying that I'm willing to stand behind and defend and explain what they just said, even if I'm like stepping back and letting them talk instead of me. So don't be a useful idiot. Don't, like, boost
1: stuff where you don't know what's going on. Yeah, are you saying you actually uh, read articles on things before you reblog them?
0: (laughs) (laughs) You mean we actually have to do our own research?
2: It's the kind of thing where it's like, yes, social justice matters to a lot of us. Many of us are at least one kind of minority. But to make our spaces more welcoming and fair and yada yada yada, like, we need to leave space for different types of minorities to have fun without being constantly bombarded with requests for education or to be good representation themselves, or to produce good representation. That is probably a more important activism than totting up statistics about what is on AO3 and being like, the market share of this ship is bad. Like, yeah, I, I see why people care about that, and I'm not saying you can't care at all, but the lived experience of someone who is being pestered to treat their hobby as fixing Hollywood's representation problem and if they don't they're bad and their hair is bad and who they date is bad and everything they love is bad because like you were supposed to be good representation and support our people and you didn't like that shit is really toxic so in terms of like positive things to say I would say like okay cultivate more smaller different spaces so people can be like well this space sucks I'm going to that one I'm voting with my feet and they don't even have to try to fix the space they can just have more spaces that's important have more moderation and have moderators. People can go to them and be like, Hey, I'm having this problem. And the problem is these are social things. So a lot of the moderators job, yeah, there are rules, but you often have to be like, okay, the technical rule you didn't violate, but you know, you violated the spirit of it. Stop doing this thing that makes our community suck. That's important. And giving people tools to help themselves. So like AO3 from what I hear is working on better blocking tools. I think that's really great because each fan can then use those blocking tools Whatever they think is racist or triggering or just annoying or I fight with them when I see them and I can't stop myself, you know, whatever the issue is, each fan can then help themselves. So those kind of tools are really valuable. And, like, okay, AO3 hasn't quite gotten there, but they've sort of got, like, the software package that, like, you could use yourself, but it's it's too hard for most people. But there is, like, another archive, the uh, old Wonderful World of Make-Believe archive. Like, I think it's now Squidge World archive, very, very, very retro if you want to go look at like some older fic. But things like having the AO3 software be a little easier to use than it currently is, so more other people can be like, hey, I do think AO3 is problematic, but I like their format. I'm going to steal their format and make my own thing for different people. That's great. But one thing we have to give up is if you want to go viral and have a bajillion comments from people you don't know, or send people to your Patreon, that kind of I want to be a famous YouTuber vibe... like. I understand why people want it, but even outside of fandom, you need to understand that most of the people who are really successful either got started a long time ago, or they secretly have a massive team behind them. It's not really just them. They're saying it's just them and they're indie, but it's a lie. If you want that kind of clout and to be an influencer and that kind of thing, that is a trap outside of fandom and within it. And you will be better off and our communities will be better off if we try to build a different kind of community away from that vibe. And honestly, if you want that vibe, you probably won't succeed at ever making enough money for it to be like meaningful. Most people, if we moved away from that, it would also be easier. Like like part of why everyone wants to only be on AO3 and they have to fix AO3 instead of building AO3 number two is because the audience is there and the clout is there. And that's part of what they're they're needing.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for those perspectives. You guys have brought so many amazing perspectives and stories and just shared all of your amazing experiences here today. We really, 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 really appreciate that. So huge thanks to the both of you. Sarah, did you have any last words for us before we wrap?
1: No, that was awesome. I just, uh, it was just a privilege to have some people who've experienced the types of fandoms that I haven't or wasn't involved in or was not able to. So that was pretty cool. And I feel like... Yeah, that whole wrap-up is basically what we all know, which is fandom is supposed to be the place you go to to celebrate the things you love and ship and let ship, and, you know, that's all good. So, But know your history is also important, so that's, that's what this episode is about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Huge thanks to Franzi and Alronix for joining us today, so thank you so, so much for that. You can find the Fanfic Maverick online at fanficmaverickpodcast.com. On Tumblr at Fanfic Maverick Podcast, on Instagram at Fanfic Maverick, and I can also be reached at 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 gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and I will see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on, on rolling.
1: rolling. I had to join you there.